640 years before the birth of Christ, a young man became king in Judah. He was to be the last faithful king of Judah, the last king to be who decided to treat Yahweh as his God. Please join me, if you would, in 2 Kings chapter 23. Because here we have the background to the lives of people like Ezekiel, Daniel and Jeremiah. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign in the year 640. Jeremiah was about the same age. Jeremiah was born into the priestly family and probably would have hung out in Jerusalem around the temple precinct. Just down the road, of course, was the palace where Josiah was born. And so almost certainly these two young men grew up together. Tragically, at the age of 39, Josiah dies. Jeremiah had been ministering for about nine years and he's devastated at the loss. The whole nation was devastated when Josiah died. His reforms were a wonderful highlight in the history of Israel, but unfortunately they had, it had no lasting effect. The prophet said that they had participated with their mouth and their feet, but their heart is far from me. And so God pronounced judgment on Judah and we find it here in 2 Kings chapter 23, and we'll read from verse 26. We've been reading about this in the alternate record in Chronicles just recently in our readings. 2 Kings 23, verse 26. Notwithstanding, Yahweh turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And Yahweh said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house which I said, my name will be there. In Josiah's 18th year of 31 years in all, about halfway, just past, he implemented the great Passover, the reform Passover. It was about this year when Daniel was born, probably around the same time as Ezekiel. Again, they were probably, these two men were probably born around the same time, along with the other three friends that we learn about in Daniel chapter 1 as well. It was an exciting time in Israel, but tragedy struck when Daniel and Ezekiel and the others were about 13 years old, just young men in the ecclesia of God in Jerusalem. Josiah died as promised by God. The people were incredibly sad for him. There had never been a mourning in Israel like this. They held a great funeral service in Megiddo. And later, Zechariah describes the sadness that Israel's going to feel when they realise that they killed the Messiah. And he says it was like, it's going to be like the mourning that they had for Josiah. In Lamentations chapter 4, verse 20, Jeremiah says, in, the, in a moment, the breath of our nostrils was taken away. Jeremiah was so upset that he, he could hardly feel like he could breathe. When you can hardly breathe at the upset that you feel. And such was the terrible time that it was in Judah. And unfortunately, it was the beginning of the end of the, the nation of Judah. Judah was going to go into captivity. They would be lost as a kingdom. Not forever, but for a time. 
And in fact, that time has continued down to today and there's never been a king on Israel since Zedekiah. Ezekiel, in chapter 21, 27 says, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, talking about the crown or the diadem of Judah, until it be no more, until he come whose right it is and I will give it to him. And so the promise that there is a prince coming, a king about to come, that's going to sit on the throne of David. But until that time comes, the throne would be vacant. And so within 22 years and six months from the death of Josiah, it was all gone. It's easy to remember because there was four kings. The first reigned for three months, the second 11 years, the third three months, and the fourth 11 years. So three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. You can see them on the screen there. Jehoahaz was the son of Josiah. He reigned for three months. He, be, he was appointed king because he was the son, but Pharaoh came, took him off the throne, took him back to Egypt and appointed Jehoiakim, who reigned for 11 years. Jehoiakim died and then Je, uh, Je, um, Jehoiachin became king for three months and then finally the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, for 11 years. We read about this in, chapter, in verse 31. Jehoahaz the son of Josiah, was 23 years old when he began to reign and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hemetel, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bands in Riblah, in the, hand of, in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he put the land to tribute of a hundred talents of silver and of gold. So just three months, three months of evil, and he was taken out of the way by Pharaoh. And Pharaoh appointed his brother Josiah, Jehoiakim, also the son of Josiah. Verse 34. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the room of Josiah his father, and turned his name to Jehoiakim and took Jehoahaz away. And he came to Egypt and died there. Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, and he taxed the land to give the money according to the commandment of Pharaoh. He exacted silver and the gold of the people of the land of everyone according to his taxation to give it unto Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 20 and five years when he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and his, mother name, his mother's name was Zebudah, the daughter of Pedadiah of Ram, Ramah and he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his fathers had done. And so Pharaoh appoints Jehoiakim. But around this time, Babylon was rising in ascendancy in world power. In fact, it was going to be, in fact, in the next couple of years where Babylon would take over as the ruler of the world, the empire that ruled the world. And so Pharaoh and Egypt retreated back to the land of Egypt and had very little more to do with the area of the Middle East. And so we read in 2 Kings 24 verse 1, now that Babylon is, is the world power, Nebuchadnezzar chooses to come and take over this um, precious piece of land that links Europe to Asia. 2 Kings 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant three years and he turned and rebelled against him. And so after three years into his 11-year reign, uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes over the, um, the control of this king and this nation of Judah. 
and he leaves him in as the king. Nebuchadnezzar invades, he takes control, leaves Jehoiakim there as king and then takes back to Babylon a number of captives. And this was the first captivity. And you'll see on the screen there, in the year 605 before, before Christ, there was the first period of 70 years. There were to be a number of invasions that would come. Uh, the last one about 20 years later, as we say. This is where we pick up our story in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is in the first group of captives that are taken. In Daniel chapter 1, we're introduced to Daniel. We don't know how old he is, but we know he's a young man, but he's obviously old enough to be taken by Nebuchadnezzar to be trained to be one of his special people. So we think Daniel is about 16, 17, or perhaps even 18 years old, but probably no more. Their world is completely ripped from them. Apart from the physical trauma, we can only um, probably imagine what it would be like to be marched across the wilderness for thousands of kilometres under the, under, the, under the guidance of uh, these soldiers of Babylon. So apart from the physical trauma that they went through, there was an enormous amount of spiritual confusion, I'm sure. We are God's people. Where is God in all of this? Why would God let this happen to the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah? And even at a personal level, why would God let this happen to me? Was I not, um, was I not faithful? Was I worse than the other people in Israel? Why would this happen to me? They're questions that we could relate to because they're, they're questions that we all have from time to time when we go through challenging things in our life. We know the answer, but the questions are still there, aren't they? It's a question about, well, why is this happening? We know the answer is that, well, God is in control and God's allowing it to happen, but it doesn't make the questions any less real. A few years later, more captives came to Babylon, including Ezekiel, and he addressed this very question. And we get an insight into the Jewish mind and just imagine what was going on during these years. Because there were those, the inhabitants in Jerusalem, and they were saying, get you far from the Lord. Unto us is this land given in possession. So the ones that remained in Jerusalem were saying, you go far away. You're obviously the evil ones. God's punishing you. Off you go to Babylon. Because God's given us this land, and we'll never be moved from it. And Ezekiel says to the captives, this is in Ezekiel 11, verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Although I have cast them afar off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I will be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they go. I will be to them a little sanctuary, and a sanctuary, of course, is, has the idea of the temple. It's the place you come to meet God. It's the place you come to worship. And what Ezekiel was telling the, the um, captives was that God was with them and that wherever they were and that wherever they would choose to worship and take the opportunity to worship and devote themselves to their God, he would be there with them, even in a foreign land. And for them, this was a new learning. This is something they had to understand and Ezekiel was encouraging them in this way. 
And so their whole world had been ripped from them. And now, actually, their spiritual world was being challenged as well. They were physically removed from the temple, which was the very focus of all of their worship. They were going to be changed culturally. They are in a completely new culture. They were going to be challenged intellectually and spiritually as well in Babylon. And so we pick up the record in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is our record we picked up from uh, 2 Kings 24, verse 1. He comes to Jerusalem, he besieges it. And Yahweh gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he, should, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favoured. They were skilful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, understanding science, and as such had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, and so nourished them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Why was God allowing this to happen? How was it that a pagan nation could overpower God's people? What was going to happen to the temple? That was the very focus of the worship of God. What would happen to the lineage of David? Because the Messiah was going to come from that lineage. So what about the promise of the Messiah? Where does that now stand? You can imagine all of the questions. What does this tell us about Yahweh, God of Israel? We thought he was the true God. But what do we understand now? You can imagine that you would start to question the existence of God. You would start to certainly question the reality of God in your life. We know from experience that you would. We've all had these experiences. But we also know that it's these times when our faith is tested, when we're going through these types of, um, of, of uh, difficulties, where we actually ask the question, is God real? Is he really there? And is he real in my life? It's only when we ask those questions that we can come to the answers. Is God real? Is Yahweh really the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Anyone looking from outside would say, well, obviously not. Obviously not. Nebuchadnezzar's come down. He's taken Jerusalem at will. And surely this is evidence that the gods of Babylon surely are greater than Yahweh, the God of Israel. But that's not how Daniel thought. Daniel says something extraordinary in verse 2. Did you notice that? Who would have thought you would write this? Yahweh gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Here's the great world empire with his massive army comes to little Jerusalem, that's a tiny little country by comparison, with just a few people there. Babylon could run over it with a third of its army, with a tenth of its army. It was no, no match for Judah. And yet the way Daniel understood the circumstances that he'd just gone through was that Yahweh gave Jehoiakim 
in, uh, the king of Judah into his hand. You see, da- Daniel knew that if it wasn't for the fact, if it wasn't for God allowing this to happen, it would never have happened. Daniel saw the hand of God in these events, which others would have looked upon and thought, well, that's just, that's just, of course, what would happen. The great nation would take the little nation. But Daniel understood that it was God that was at work in the affairs of men, and that becomes one of the themes of the book of Daniel. But we're also going to see that God is not only at work in the affairs of men, in the nations of men, but he's at work in the lives of individuals who put their trust in God. Now, why would Daniel think this? Why would Daniel actually believe this? Is it just something he'd been told and he took it for granted and didn't question it? Well, David had faith. In other words, David... Do I say David all the time? Daniel understood and he had faith. But where would he get this faith and this trust from? Well, we know where faith comes from. It comes from hearing the word of God and uh, well, comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And so no doubt Daniel would have understood the prophecies and there are many. This is an example. 80 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah spoke to Hezekiah and he said, Behold, the days come that all that is in thy house and all which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord, And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shalt thou take away, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so Daniel had done his Bible readings. He'd understood what the prophecies were. And so he developed his faith based on the word of God. And so he was able to see the hand of God in the events that were happening around him. Daniel understood that Israel was God's special people, but they'd failed. And so they were about to be punished. And they were about to be taken through a time of difficulty. God would never forsake them, but they would go through a time of difficulty that they might return to God. Now, I've got no doubt that these four young men that are mentioned in Daniel 1 did not have all of the answers. There is, of course, a tension between seeing God at work in our own life and God at work in the, in the nations around us and the trouble which we all face at a personal level. And that, of course, is one of our challenges. But these four men never lost sight of the fact that they had not been abandoned by God. And so Daniel and others like Jeremiah and Ezekiel were faithful and had come to this realisation. A few years later, when Ezekiel came to Babylon as the second lot of captives, he brought with him a letter which had been given to the captives from Jeremiah. It's recorded in Jeremiah chapter 29. And part of this letter from Jeremiah to those over in Babylon says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished, and at Babylon I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith Yahweh, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will listen to you, I will hearken to you, and you will seek me and find me, when ye shall search me with all of your heart. 
And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from the nations and I will bring uh, and from all the places where I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And so God challenges Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the other friends and all of the captives. He asks them to pray, to reach out, to find God in their life. And he says, if you seek uh, unto me with all your heart, I will bring you again into the promised land. This word expected end is an interesting word. It's the word tikvah. It means hope. You've probably heard of the song Hava Tikvah, which is the national anthem of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish state. It was written in the 1800s. It's a song about the hope that one day the people of Israel would have a land to go home to. And so in 1948, they finally had a state. They chose this um, old song to remind them of the time when they didn't have a land to go to and it was just a hope. And so hope becomes so important, doesn't it, for those who are in exile, for, for all those who are waiting uh, for God's revelation, for God, or the revelation of Messiah and the time when they would be returned to the land. And we're in the same position as Daniel. We're outside the land, we're in exile in that sense, waiting for the time, the hope, the time that would come, will come when we will be taken to the kingdom of God. This, of course, was the attitude of the first century brethren as well. Trouble was never far away, but they were encouraged to see God in their life. Our Lord himself said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. And Peter also says, He uh, and he who, who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good, but if and ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. About a hundred years earlier, the, the nation of Assyria, under the hand of Sennacherib, took the northern tribes of Israel. He actually overcame Babylon as well. And so Assyria was the world power for quite some time. But of course, as we know from Daniel chapter 11, the wings were plucked from the Assyrian lion, the lion stood up and eventually was given a man's heart. But right at the time when Daniel and his four friends and the other, the other captives were coming into Babylon, Babylon had risen to the ascendancy and the city of Babylon had been completely rebuilt. And so the city that they came into was the most extraordinary city one can possibly imagine. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The Ishtar Gate has been re redone, um, and you can see it in the uh, museum in Ber uh, Berlin, the Pergamon Museum. Herodotus says that the walls were 25 metres thick, they were 100 metres high and 90 kilometres long. And as you came into the city through the main gates, You'd walk, down, you'd walk down this huge uh, promenade and at the end was the, the massive temple, the ziggurat temple, 
the Eti Meni Anki, as it was called, and it means the foundation of heaven and earth. And this was the place that Daniel and his friends came into. They'd left the small village, really, by comparison of Jerusalem, and they were thrust into this enormous world power. Their eyes would have been like saucers. They would have been amazed at every turn of what they'd seen. It was an incredible place. And even today, when we look at our watches and we see 60 minutes and 60 seconds or 360 degrees in a circle and so on, it all comes from Babylon. They were incredible mathematicians. They were in, it was an incredible empire. And these young men would have been completely overawed by that. And they would have asked themselves the question, what have we come to here? Is everything that we knew back home true? How could it be that this place could be like this? Have we been missing this all our life? And the challenge was going to be for them. Would they remember the things of truth that they'd been taught in Jerusalem? Or would they be overcome with the incredible things of the world around them? Well, we know the answer because we've read the book. Absolutely not. Not Daniel and his friends anyway. Well, if the first part of the second verse is curious, I think the second part of the second verse is equally as curious. It says, With the part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Now, in the overall scheme of things, with all of the questions and all the information it would be nice to have, why are we particularly interested in the vessels of the house of God? Would we really care about that? Well, Daniel did. Actually, later on in Ezra chapter 1, verse 11, we're told that 5,400 vessels were returned from Babylon, or Medo-Persia as it was then, back to Jerusalem. These vessels were taken from the temple and the precinct of the temple. They were holy and precious. They were fundamental to the worship of Yahweh in that place. And here they were being brought to Babylon, these holy, precious vessels. About 70 years later, Daniel now in his 80s, well into his 80s, witnessed a king who was going to challenge the glory of the God of Israel. He was going to treat the God of Israel as unholy. It was, of course, Belshazzar. And 70 years later, he brought these vessels into a banquet. And it says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to the thousand of his lords and drank the wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded the king to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. And so they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and his princes and wives and concubines did drink in them. That night, they would all die. From the first book of the Bible until the end, one of the principles which Daniel understood, and we all, have, we all understand, don't we, is that God is holy. That is, he's not to be dismissed. He's not to be treated like one of our friends or a mate, He's not like just somebody else. He is glorious and all-powerful and wonderful. 
and we, are, and we ought to be in awe of him. And so when the disciples came to our Lord and said, teach us how to pray, he said, this is how you pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We don't use the word hallowed very often these days, but it means holy. Holy be your name. The things of our Father are of supreme value. They are holy. And Daniel was coming into a new world where these vessels, you'll see, that were holy to God, were special, were now just going to be put into the house of God's. And so while Daniel was in exile, the question would be was, would he still continue to see God as being holy? Would Yahweh still be the God, the holy God? Now you'll see the care that Nebuchadnezzar took, unlike Belshazzar. These were valuable vessels, no question. Daniel lived in a world where, well, God was valuable for sure. God was certainly interesting. Well, but he was just like, well, any other valuable thing as well. There was thousands of gods, it said, in Babylon. God was important, but really just like many other important things in life. Daniel lived in a world just like we live in. A world where people say, well, God is important. Well, and certainly if he's important to you, he's important. But he's just another one of the important things in your life. And so today in the world, you can pick your important thing. You can even pick your God. You can pick your Trinity or your unity or your Christianity or your Islam. And really nobody minds too much. And they'll even respect you for it. But there's really no importance attached to it in that sense. And Daniel and his friends would have to decide whether they were going to maintain their value system and see Yahweh, God of Israel, as ultimate value, as the ultimate glory. Or were they going to adopt the value system of Babylon where Yahweh would be important, but many other things in life were of equal importance. And that was going to be the challenge that they were about to be faced with. And they were going to be assaulted with a cultural change program that was going to ensure that they adopted the Babylonian way of thinking. Nebuchadnezzar was a very shrewd man. You don't get to be the king of the world by being a fool. He was no fool. He was intelligent and far-sighted. And so he would go into these um, places like Israel or Judah and Jerusalem and he'd pick out the very best young people, people that were young enough to be taught, but super smart, people that could help him in the years to come. And what he'd often do, once he'd trained them up, lavish them with all of the benefits and all of the luxuries of Babylon, he'd send them back to where they came from. And there they would rule on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar. They would be loyal people who would be kings and leaders back in the land that they'd been taken from. And so this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does with Daniel and his friends. Certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom there were no blemish. This is what Nebuchadnezzar valued. They were well-favoured, skillful in wisdom, cunning in knowledge, understanding science, and had the ability to stand in the king's palace, whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. The king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, 
and so nourish them for three years, and at the end thereof the king, they might stand before the king. And so in order for Nebuchadnezzar to change these young men, to change the way they looked at the world, he put them through a three-year talent program. And it involved the change of location. So he took them from Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon. And so they were put not just in Babylon, but in the very heart of Babylon, in the king's palace precinct, no less. They were in the very centre of the world. Imagine that. He would change their names or their identity, the way they thought about themselves. He changed their food and drink. He changed their learning and education, the way they understood the world and the way they viewed the world. And finally, he would change their language, the way they spoke, the way they expressed themselves, the way you describe the world you live in and understand the world you live in. And anyone my age who can look back over the years, the last couple of decades that we have lived in, we realise that the world we live in is going through a very similar cultural change program. Why would you change their name? What's in a name? What's the big deal about changing their names? Well, a name is a big deal. This was understood by people in these times. We know that most of the characters in the Bible have names that mean something. This was what was done in those days. I mean, it's not quite so different. It's a little bit different today in the sense that I might have a name or you've got a name and it probably doesn't mean that much as an individual level. But of course, names do mean a lot. We call it branding today. It's a multi-billion dollar exercise. And of course, in each of the names that companies choose and other people choose, there's a whole culture and a whole message and a whole way of viewing the world that sits behind a name. And we already talked about the name of Yahweh already this, morning, uh, this afternoon. And so names had meaning. There was a sense of identity associated with a name, just like a brand, as we might use it in today's world. And so these, these men, these young men, had names which represented their heritage and their value system. And so Daniel, of course, was... God is my judge, or Ale is my judge. Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. And Mishael, who is like Ale, who is like God. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't want this heritage, did he? It's not what Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. And so that was to be banished from memory, and they were given new names. Belteshazzar, may Bel protect you. Bel was the main god of Babylon. Shadrach, the commander of Aku, who was the moon god. Abednego, the servant of Nabu, who was the son of Bel. And Meshach, who is like Aku. And so Babylon was going to change their names because it was going to change their identity. And the question was, of course, was Babylon going to change the identity of these men? And the answer was, it didn't. It changed their names, but it couldn't change their identity. You know, cities and places have their, their culture and their ideology. It underpins the way life is seen in those places, and Babylon was no different to other cities. You don't talk about the difference between Melbourne and Sydney or Sydney and Brisbane. You could, you could sort of talk about the different types of culture and the different way people live their lives. Well, what sort of, what sort of city was Babylon? 
What was Babylon based on? Well, I think we've already probably hinted at it, but we don't need to guess because we know the background. Genesis 11 verse 4, it was a city that was based on personal ambition. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It was built on personal ambition and pride, this idea of identity. And this idea of identity is what is meaningful to you. Where do you get your meaning from in life? Who are you and why do you do what you do? And so in the case of Babylon, it came from self-achievement, making a name for yourself. And that's what Babylon stood for. It's exactly like the world we live in today. You know, in the very next chapter of the Bible, we get an alternative view, don't we? We have a man who was taken out of Babylon, come out of Babylon, out of Ur of the Chaldees, says God. Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whom him who dishonours you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Babylon stood for personal achievement, creating one's own identity. What does Jerusalem stand for? This is the story of the Bible, isn't it? Right from the beginning to the end. From the early chapters of Genesis, we've got Babylon set against Jerusalem. Right through to the end of Revelation, Babylon set against Jerusalem. One stands for personal achievement and, setting your, and, and establishing your own identity. And the other stands for allowing God to work in your life and allowing him to establish your identity, allowing God to mould you and make you who he wants you to be. Jerusalem stands for reliance on God. We need to let go of personal pursuits and trying to establish our own identity. This was certainly what Daniel and his friends did. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be unsuccessful they paid attention to their learning, didn't we? We read that. Daniel is probably the most successful public servant in the history of mankind. He was the ruler, second or third in at least the two world empires. He was the second ruler for Nebuchadnezzar. He was obviously high up for Belteshazzar, or Belshazzar as well. And then when the Medes and Persians took over, they elevated him again. He was an extraordinary man. But his life was always... Yahweh first. He was always a servant of Yahweh first and then a public servant. He was an extraordinary man. Their language was also changed. And ironically, of course, it was Babylon where languages were, were created or changed in the first place. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so here was Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon trying to reverse the work that the angels did in Genesis chapter 11. And we live in a world that's not dissimilar. We live in a world that's changing our language, changing the way we speak. In fact, the world in some cases is trying to tell you how you should speak. So words that we used to use we don't use anymore and words we never heard of before all of a sudden we're using. 
words like truth or commandment or authority, dogma, faith, conscience, morality, sin. Where do we use sin? Outside of maybe the walls of our ecclesia. Wrong, immoral, ungodly, husband, wife. Words that are being phased out of our language. And they've given away to words like non-discrimination, equality, diversification, choice, plurality, diversity, hate speech, and you get the picture. And words have different meanings now, don't they? You have spouse or marriage, tolerance, equality, male, female. Words that mean different things today than they, they meant just a couple of decades ago. We live in a world that is spiralling headlong into confusion because they've lost sight of any ultimate reality. This was not going to be the case with Daniel. We know the story. We know that Daniel refused to eat the king's meat. We read that in verse 8. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. The first thing I notice is that this was not a whim. Daniel thought deeply about this. It wasn't just something because he, some history or some sort of cultural thing or some preference. He purposed in his heart, he thought about this deeply. This meant something to him. And what was it? Why wouldn't he eat the meat? Well, we're told that he didn't want to defile himself. Now, the idea of defile means to be dirty. It's the opposite of holy, if you like. So we talk, think about the things that are holy and they're associated with washing and cleansing. Think of the temple and all of the, those things and the holy things. Well, defile is the opposite. It's being dirty and represents the opposite to being holy. Daniel saw himself as a holy vessel of God. And he understood the importance of being separate. And so he would not defile himself. And I don't think it's any coincidence that these holy vessels are mentioned, coming out of Jerusalem, along with the captives. And so also when, they, when the special people of God return back to Jerusalem at the end of the 70 years, again, the holy vessels are mentioned. But what was it about the food? Why didn't Daniel want to partake of the food? Well, people say, well, there's probably three reasons, three possible reasons why Daniel didn't want to take the food. First, it might have been unclean. It could have been pork or it could have been shellfish. The second reason was it could have been that it wasn't killed properly. You remember that the Israelites had to kill the animal and drain the blood because the blood was God's. So it mightn't have been killed properly. Or perhaps... The, uh, the food had been offered to idols. Well, we're not told and Daniel doesn't say. The thing I do notice, though, is that Daniel says in verse 8, it's the king's meat and wine that he would not partake of. There were no rules that I know of in the law of Moses about what wine you could drink or not drink. So I don't think it's got anything to, to do with the law of Moses. I think the point is that Daniel was not interested in getting involved with and participating in the delicacies of Babylon. 
Daniel was refusing this new way of life. Today we call it a lifestyle. And I think Daniel was refusing that lifestyle. He was a Hebrew and he wanted to stay a Hebrew. And Daniel never compromised. He never changed that way of thinking from a young man to an old man. And as we mentioned, 70 years later, there was another feast and they were eating the meat and they were drinking the wine and they were all killed. And we know what happened when the writing came up on the wall, that they had to go and find Daniel, someone who might be able to interpret the writing because Daniel wasn't there, even though he was second or third in the empire. When they were feasting, he wasn't there. I've got no doubt it got to a stage where they didn't bother inviting Daniel to the feasts any longer. Daniel never changed his way of thinking. Even a few years later, when Daniel was um, one of the rulers under the, the Medes and Persians, it says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, that he was preferred among, above all of the other presidents because there was an excellent spirit found in him. And so King um, Darius appointed Daniel as second in charge of the empire. It says in Daniel 6, verse 4, that his peers sought to find occasion against him. I wonder why they hated Daniel so much. They were no, no doubt jealous because of his success, that's for sure. But I think probably he didn't fit in either. He was not one of them, not one of the boys' club there at all. I mean, he was off eating vegetables and drinking water when they were all feasting and drinking the king's wine. And we know the story. They tricked the king into making a proclamation that anyone who approached any uh, king for 30 days, any uh, god for 30 days, was to be thrown into the lion's den. So what does Daniel do? We know the story. Daniel goes into his house. He opens a window or the window's open. He faces Jerusalem. He gets down on his knees and he prays. So again, we have the same question, don't we? We're not actually told why he did it, really. But actually, I think we've got a clue as to why he did it. Let's read Daniel 1 verse 8. As he did aforetime, says Daniel, he went into his house. His windows being open in his chamber towards Jerusalem, he kneeled down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. As he did aforetime. I think this is the clue as to why Daniel did it. There's no commandment in the law of Moses that you have to pray towards Jerusalem. There's no requirement to do that. You didn't have to have the window open. He could have shut the window. But he didn't. And I think what we're being told here is that this was Daniel's devotion to his God. This was his expression of worship. Three times a day, he would go to his room. Wherever he was in the palace, he'd go up to his room. He'd go to this window which faced Jerusalem. And this was the way he had determined to devote himself to his God. And this was not open for, co for compromise. This was, not going, this was not up for conversation. The Medes weren't going to tell him how he was going to worship his God. And so from a young man to a much older man to the end of his life, he was a man who rejected the lifestyle in Babylon. He was absolutely committed to remain holy before his God. Another insight we get into these men in these verses, in these chapters, is 
We notice here that it looks like it's Daniel that takes the lead. It's Daniel that purposes in his heart not to partake of the wine or the meat. But we find the other three friends follow along with Daniel's example. We wonder what would have happened if Daniel hadn't have stood up. Would they have thought about it or what would they have done? Well, we don't know. But what we do know is that they stood behind Daniel's example and, and, and stood with Daniel in this. We come to chapter 3, of course, and Daniel's missing. We don't know where Daniel is, but here's the three friends without Daniel. And they refuse to bow down to the great image in the plain. And so these three friends are standing up for themselves. We also come over to Daniel chapter 2. We get an insight into the relationship between these men in Daniel chapter 2. We know that Daniel hears that Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill the wise men. And so Daniel seeks an audience with the king. Verse 16, he promises the king, in verse 16, that he would show the king's interpretation. Now, at this point, Daniel not only doesn't know the interpretation, he doesn't even know what the dream is. And he says, can you get me in front of the king? I'll tell him what the dream is and what the interpretation is. And he has no clue. He has absolutely no clue what the dream was or the interpretation. So what does he do? Verse 17, Daniel goes to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of, God, of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And so in a time of crisis, he turns to his friends, thousands of kilometres away from their home, from the ecclesia of God as it was, here are four young men that are standing together, who together are unbreakable in their bond and their support for one another in their spiritual life. It's a story not about one man, is it? It's a story about a small group of brethren who decided that they were going to remain holy and they were going to encourage one another to live a life of holiness before their God. And so their challenge was they would accept the education, they would learn what Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to learn, they would learn the language, but they would never discount God in their life and they would keep separate in the way they lived their life. There was a curious twist, did you notice, in verse, chapter 1, verse 12. Let's find this quite interesting and wonder what was going through Daniel's mind. In chapter 1, verse 12, when Daniel says, I'm not going to eat the meat, well, actually, he doesn't say that. What he says in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat or vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our countenance or our face be looked upon and the face of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat, as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them for ten days. What I find curious is that Daniel didn't say, I'm never eating the king's meat. I, I just won't be doing that regardless of what happens. He actually says, give, give us just 10 days and we'll prove to you that we'll be better off and then you decide whether we eat the meat or not. We know what happened in verse 15. At the end of 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in the flesh than all the children that did eat the portion of the king's meat. And get a real insight into Daniel here. And it's worth thinking about for ourselves. He didn't just understand what was the right thing to do, he actually knew that it was going to be good for him 
I think that might sound pretty obvious, but I think it's actually a real insight, isn't it? When we think about what our Heavenly Father wants of us in our life, do we actually see it as being good for us? Do we actually see that we'll be better off for it in the long run? Because I think that's the challenge of the way we see our life in our, in, 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 in under the shadow of our Father's hand, isn't it? That in the end, we'll be better off if we follow the instructions and live a life of holiness before our God. So we should actually want to do what God wants us to do and be confident that as a result, we will be better off. The results at the very end in verse 18 were amazing. At the end of the three years, at the end of the days that the king had said that he would bring them in, the princes and the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them, and among them was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king in all matters of wisdom and understanding, and the king inquired of them, and he found them ten times better than all the magicians, the astrologers that were in his realm. If we follow our father's advice, we will be better. I don't think that means we're going to necessarily be the smartest or the richest or anything else particularly, but we will be better. We will be better for it. We will be better for following our Heavenly Father's guidance in our lives. The similarities between the world that we live in and the position we find ourselves in as these young men are obvious, aren't they? And so the book of Daniel is a record of not only Daniel's life, but of the life of his friends and, of course, prophecies. It's a book that was written probably by Daniel for people like us. It's a book which can be divided in half. Well, it's often described as a book that can be divided in half. It's got sort of the narrative of half the first six chapters. The last six chapters are more about the prophecy. I'm not sure that's exactly true. I mean, chapter two is all about prophecy. The book itself, though, or the author actually divides it somewhat differently. The book at the beginning is in Hebrew, up to about chapter 2, verse 4. Then there's a big section that's in Aramaic, which is the tongue that was spoken of in Babylon and in the region, generally speaking. And then in the end, there's four chapters at the end of the book that are in Hebrew. It'd be interesting to have a chat about why you think the middle of the book was in Aramaic. That's a conversation we, we don't have time to talk about now. But I believe this book like all of the Bible, of course, but this book is designed for people like you and I, for people that are in exile and are waiting for the time to come when the kingdom of God will be established and will be called into Jerusalem to reign as kings and priests with Messiah, the king of Israel, as it will be. And so we see that this book is, has a series of chapters, chapters 1 3 and 6, which are all about maintaining our integrity in the kingdom of men. Chapter, chapter 1 is about integrity in behaviour. Chapter 3 is integrity in worship. And chapter 6 is integrity in devotion. And then we have two similar but contrasting chapters. And these are about the fact that the kingdoms of men are going to be humbled. So whilst you're living in Babylon, it mightn't feel like it. 
It mightn't feel like that all of the things that are around about us are one day going to come tumbling down, but they are. It's going to happen. Chapter 4, of course, we've got Nebuchadnezzar, who was humbled. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. And in, in, by comparison and in contrast, we have the other king who refused to be, who refused to be humbled, Belshazzar. And Daniel says, the God in whose breath, sorry, in, in God whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, you have not glorified. God has numbered your kingdom, and he's finished it. You're weighed in the balances, and you're found wanting. Your kingdom is divided, and it's been given to the Medes and Persians. And of course, that night, the kingdom of Babylon was to fall. And then we have... Chapters which talk about the kingdom of God that will prevail over the kingdoms of men. Chapter 2 finishes with, The king answered Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of secrets, seeing that you could reveal this secret. And chapter 7 finishes, The judgment shall sit and they will take away his dominion and consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and dominions will serve and obey him. And so we have this section or these chapters that teach us that the kingdom of men is going to give way ultimately to the kingdom of God. And then at the end of the book, we've got this little Hebrew section, which is made up of four chapters in Hebrew. These chapters are really chapters which are designed to assure us that God is in control. God will be exalted in, verse, in chapter 8. The answer to the question, well, how long will it be, is in, verse, in chapter 9. And then we have a time of trouble and then final redemption in the last two chapters of Daniel. It's an extraordinary book. And you might also sort of get, see a little bit of a similarity, I think, to the way the book Revelation is written, where we have uh, visions of the future age, wrapped in with prophecies that are narrative about the events that are going to take place. And so we have these, these sort of this over-wrapping way of um, encouraging, um, each, uh, encouraging us in the way that these books are written. And so the book of Daniel is a book which is an assurance of hope to those faithful in exile down through the ages. And so the message comes down through the years from Daniel 600 um, years before the Lord Jesus Christ, right down to our Master, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who in his very final message, in the very final part of his message, reminds us, come out of her, my people, he says. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Alas, alas, that great city Babylon that mighty city, for in one hour thy judgment is come. And the time is coming when that city will be destroyed and those who have come out of her will be the saints that will rule with Christ forever and ever upon the earth. And so we finish with Daniel's message in chapter 12. A promise to those who maintain spiritual integrity 
even when in isolation, even when in exile. And they shall be wise. They that are, shall be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever. Six hundred and forty years before the birth of Christ, a young man became king in Judah. He was to be the last faithful king of Judah, the last king to be who decided to treat Yahweh as his God. Please join me, if you would, in Second Kings chapter twenty-three, because here we have the background to the lives of people like Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign in the year 640. Jeremiah was about the same age. Jeremiah was born into the priestly family and probably would have hung out in Jerusalem around the temple precinct. Just down the road, of course, was the palace where Josiah was born. And so almost certainly these two young men grew up together. Tragically, at the age of 39, Josiah dies. Jeremiah had been ministering for about nine years and he's devastated at the loss. The whole nation was devastated when Josiah died. His reforms were a wonderful highlight in the history of Israel, but unfortunately they had, it had no lasting effect. The prophet said that they had participated with their mouth and their feet, but their heart is far from me. And so God pronounced judgment on Judah and we find it here in 2 Kings, chapter 23, and we'll read from verse 26. We've been reading about this in the alternate record in Chronicles just recently in our readings. 2 Kings 23, verse 26. Notwithstanding, Yahweh turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And Yahweh said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house which I said, my name will be there. In Josiah's 18th year of 31 years in all, about halfway, just past, he implemented the great Passover, the reform Passover. It was about this year when Daniel was born, probably around the same time as Ezekiel, Again, they were probably, these two men were probably born around the same time, along with the other three friends that we learn about in Daniel chapter 1 as well. It was an exciting time in Israel, but tragedy struck when Daniel and Ezekiel and the others were about 13 years old, just young men in the ecclesia of God in Jerusalem. Josiah died as promised by God. The people were incredibly sad for him. There had never been a mourning in Israel like this. 
they held a great funeral service in Megiddo. And later, Zechariah describes the sadness that Israel's going to feel when they realise that they killed the Messiah. And he says it was like, it's going to be like the mourning that they had for Josiah. In Lamentations chapter 4, verse 20, Jeremiah says, in, the, in a moment, the breath of our nostrils was taken away. Jeremiah was so upset that he, he could hardly feel like he could breathe. When you can hardly breathe at the upset that you feel. And such was the terrible time that it was in Judah. And unfortunately, it was the beginning of the end of the, the nation of Judah. Judah was going to go into captivity. They would be lost as a kingdom. Not forever, but for a time. And in fact, that time has continued down to today. And there's never been a king on Israel since Zedekiah. Ezekiel, in chapter 21, 27, says, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, talking about the crown or the diadem of Judah, until it be no more, until he come whose right it is, and I will give it to him. And so the promise that there is a prince coming, a king about to come, that's going to sit on the throne of David. But until that time comes, the throne would be vacant. And so within 22 years and six months from the death of Josiah, it was all gone. It's easy to remember because there was four kings, the first reigned for three months, the second 11 years, the third three months, and the fourth 11 years. So three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. You can see them on the screen there. Jehoahaz was the son of Josiah. He reigned for three months. He, be, he was appointed king because he was the son, but Pharaoh came, took him off the throne, took him back to Egypt and appointed Jehoiakim, who reigned for 11 years. Jehoiakim died and then Jehoiachin became king for three months and then finally the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, for 11 years. We read about this in, chapter, in verse 31. Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, was 23 years old when he began to reign and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hemetel, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bands in Riblah, in the, hand of, in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he put the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and of gold. So just three months, three months of evil. And he was taken out of the way by Pharaoh. And Pharaoh appointed his brother Josiah, uh, Jehoiakim, also the son of Josiah. Verse 34. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the room of Josiah, his father, and turned his name to Jehoiakim and took Jehoahaz away. And he came to Egypt and died there. Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, and he taxed the land to give the money according to the commandment of Pharaoh. He exacted silver and the gold of the people of the land of everyone according to his taxation to give it unto Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 20 and five years when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his, mother name, his mother's name was Zebudah, the daughter of Pedadiah of Ram, Ramah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his fathers had done. And so Pharaoh appoints Jehoiakim. But around this time, Babylon was rising in ascendancy in world power. 
In fact, it was going to be, in fact, in the next couple of years where Babylon would take over as the ruler of the world, the empire that ruled the world. And so Pharaoh and Egypt retreated back to the land of Egypt and had very little more to do with the area of the Middle East. And so we read in 2 Kings 24 verse 1, now that Babylon is, is the world power, Nebuchadnezzar chooses to come and take over this um, precious piece of land that links Europe to Asia. 2 Kings 24 verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant three years and he turned and rebelled against him. And so after three years into his 11-year reign, uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes over the, um, the control of this king and this nation of Judah and he leaves him in as the king. Nebuchadnezzar invades, he takes control, leaves Jehoiakim there as king and then takes back to Babylon a number of captives. And this was the first captivity. And you'll see on the screen there, in the year 605 before Christ, there was the first period of 70 years. There were to be a number of invasions that would come. Uh, the last one about 20 years later, as we say. This is where we pick up our story in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is in the first group of captives that are taken in Daniel chapter 1, we're introduced to Daniel. We don't know how old he is, but we know he's a young man, but he's obviously old enough to be taken by Nebuchadnezzar, to be trained, to be one of his special people. So we think Daniel is about 16, 17, or perhaps even 18 years old, but probably no more. Their world is completely ripped from them. Apart from the physical trauma, we can only... Um, probably imagine what it would be like to be marched across the wilderness for thousands of kilometres under the, under, the, under the guidance of uh, these soldiers of Babylon. So apart from the physical trauma that they went through, there was an enormous amount of spiritual confusion, I'm sure. We are God's people. Where is God in all of this? Why would God let this happen to the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah? And even at a personal level, why would God let this happen to me? Was I, not, um, was I not faithful? Was I worse than the other people in Israel? Why would this happen to me? They're questions that we could relate to because they're, they're questions that we all have from time to time when we go through challenging things in our life. We know the answer, but the questions are still there, aren't they? It's a question about, well, why is this happening? We know the answer is that, well, God is in control and God's allowing it to happen. But it doesn't make the questions any less real. A few years later, more captives came to Babylon, including Ezekiel. And he addressed this very question. And we get an insight into the, into the Jewish mind and just imagine what was going on in, during these years. Because there were those, the inhabitants in Jerusalem, and they were saying, get you far from the Lord. Unto us is this land given in possession. So the ones that remained in Jerusalem were saying, you go far away. You're obviously the evil ones. God's punishing you. Off you go to Babylon because God's given us this land and we'll never be moved from it. And Ezekiel says to the captives, this is in Ezekiel 11, verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, 
Although I have cast them afar off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I will be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they go. I will be to them a little sanctuary. And a sanctuary, of course, is, has the idea of the temple. It's the place you come to meet God. It's the place you come to worship. And what Ezekiel was telling the, the um, captives was that God was with them and that wherever they were and that wherever they would choose to worship and take the opportunity to worship and devote themselves to their God, he would be there with them, even in a foreign land. And for them, this was a new learning. This is something they had to understand. And Ezekiel was encouraging them in this way. And so their whole world had been ripped from them. And now, actually, their spiritual world was being challenged as well. They were physically removed from the temple, which was the very focus of all of their worship. They were going to be changed culturally. They're in a completely new culture. They're going to be challenged intellectually and spiritually as well in Babylon. And so we pick up the record in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is our record we picked up from uh, 2 Kings 24, verse 1. He comes to Jerusalem, he besieges it. And Yahweh gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he, should, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favoured. They were skilful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, understanding science, and as such had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, and so nourished them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Why was God allowing this to happen? How was it that a pagan nation could overpower God's people? What was going to happen to the temple? That was the very focus of the worship of God. What would happen to the lineage of David? Because the Messiah was going to come from that lineage. So what about the promise of the Messiah? Where does that now stand? You can imagine all of the questions. What does this tell us about Yahweh, God of Israel? We thought he was the true God. But what do we understand now? You can imagine that you would start to question the existence of God. You would start to certainly question the reality of God in your life. We know from experience that you would. We've all had these experiences. But we also know that it's these times when our faith is tested, when we're going through these types of, um, of, of uh, difficulties, where we actually ask the question, is God real? Is he really there? And is he real in my life? It's only when we ask those questions that we can come to the answers. Is God real? Is Yahweh really the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Anyone looking from outside would say, well, obviously not. Obviously not. Nebuchadnezzar's come down. He's taken Jerusalem at will. And surely this is evidence that the gods of Babylon 
surely are greater than Yahweh, the God of Israel. But that's not how Daniel thought. Daniel says something extraordinary in verse 2. Did you notice that? Who would have thought you would write this? Yahweh gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Here's the great world empire with his massive army comes to little Jerusalem, that's a tiny little country by comparison, with just a few people there. Babylon could run over it with a third of its army, with a tenth of its army. It was no, no match for Judah. And yet the way Daniel understood the circumstances that he'd just gone through was that Yahweh gave Jehoiakim, in, oh, the king of Judah, into his hand. You see, Daniel knew that if it wasn't for the fact, if it wasn't for God allowing this to happen, it would never have happened. Daniel saw the hand of God in these events, which others would have looked upon and thought, well, that's just, that's just, of course, what would happen. The great nation would take the little nation. But Daniel understood that it was God that was at work in the affairs of men, and that becomes one of the themes of the book of Daniel. But we're also going to see that God is not only at work in the affairs of men, in the nations of men, but he's at work in the lives of individuals who put their trust in God. Now, why would Daniel think this? Why would Daniel actually believe this? Is it just something he'd been told and he took it for granted and didn't question it? Well, David had faith. In other words, David... Do I say David all the time? Daniel understood and he had faith. But where would he get this faith and this trust from? Well, we know where faith comes from. It comes from hearing the word of God. and Well, it comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And so no doubt Daniel would have understood the prophecies and there are many. This is an example. Eighty years earlier, the prophet Isaiah spoke to Hezekiah. And he said, Behold, the days come that all that is in thy house and all which thy fathers have laid up in store into this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shalt thou take away, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so Daniel had done his Bible readings. He'd understood what the prophecies were. And so he developed his faith based on the word of God and so he was able to see the hand of God in the events that were happening around him. Daniel understood that Israel was God's special people, but they'd failed. And so they were about to be punished and they were about to be taken through a time of difficulty. God would never forsake them, but they would go through a time of difficulty that they might return to God. Now I've got no doubt that these four young men that I mentioned in Daniel 1 did not have all of the answers. There is, of course, a tension between seeing God at work in our own life and God at work in the, in the nations around us and the trouble which we all face at a personal level. And that, of course, is one of our challenges. But these four men never lost sight of the fact that they had not been abandoned by God. And so Daniel and others like Jeremiah and Ezekiel were faithful and had come to this realisation. A few years later, 
when Ezekiel came to Babylon as the second lot of captives, he brought with him a letter which had been given to the captives from Jeremiah. It's recorded in Jeremiah chapter 29. And part of this letter from Jeremiah to those over in Babylon says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished, and at Babylon I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith Yahweh, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will listen to you, I will hearken to you, and you will seek me and find me, when ye shall search me with all of your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from the nations, and I will bring, uh, and from all the places where I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And so God challenges Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the other friends and all of the captives. He asks them to pray, to reach out, to find God in their life. And he says, if you seek uh, unto me with all your heart, I will bring you again into the promised land. This word expected end is an interesting word. It's the word tikva. It means hope. You've probably heard of the song Hava Tikva, which is the national anthem of the Jewish, uh, the Jew Jewish state. It was written in the 1800s. It's a song about the hope that one day the people of Israel would have a land to go home to. And so in 1948, they finally had a state. They chose this um, old song to remind them of the time when they didn't have a land to go to and it was just a hope. And so hope becomes so important, doesn't it, for those who are in exile, for, for all those who are waiting uh, for God's revelation, for God, or the revelation of Messiah and the time when they would be returned to the land. And we're in the same position as Daniel. We're outside the land, we're in exile in that sense, waiting for the time, the hope, the time that would come, will come when we will be taken to the kingdom of God. This, of course, was the attitude of the first century brethren as well. Trouble was never far away, but they were encouraged to see God in their life. Our Lord himself said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. And Peter also says, He uh, and he who, who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good, but if, and ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled." About 100 years earlier, the, the nation of Assyria, under the hand of Sennacherib, took the northern tribes of Israel. He actually overcame Babylon as well. And so Assyria was the world power for quite some time. But of course, as we know from Daniel chapter 11, the wings were plucked from the Assyrian lion. The lion stood up and eventually was given a man's heart. 
But right at the time when Daniel and his four friends and the other, the other captives were coming into Babylon, Babylon had risen to the ascendancy and the city of Babylon had been completely rebuilt. And so the city that they came into was the most extraordinary city one can possibly imagine. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The Ishtar Gate has been re redone, uh, and you can see it in the uh, museum in Ber uh, Berlin, the Pergamon Museum. Herodotus says that the walls were 25 metres thick, they are 100 metres high and 90 kilometres long. And as you came into the city through the main gates, you'd walk down, you'd walk down this huge uh, promenade and at the end was the, the massive temple, the Ziggurat Temple, the Eti Meni Anki, as it was called, and it means the foundation of heaven and earth. And this was the place that Daniel and his friends came into. They'd left the small village, really, by comparison of Jerusalem, and they were thrust into this enormous world power. Their eyes would have been like saucers. They would have been amazed at every turn of what they'd seen. It was an incredible place. And even today, when we look at our watches and we see 60 minutes and 60 seconds or 360 degrees in a circle and so on, it all comes from Babylon. They were incredible mathematicians. They were in, it was an incredible empire. And these young men would have been completely overawed by that. And they would have asked themselves the question, what have we come to here? Is everything that we knew back home true? How could it be that this place could be like this? Have we been missing this all our life? And the challenge was going to be for them. Would they remember the things of truth that they'd been taught in Jerusalem? Or would they be overcome with the incredible things of the world around them? Well, we know the answer because we've read the book. Absolutely not. Not Daniel and his friends anyway. Well, if the first part of the second verse is curious, I think the second part of the second verse is equally as curious. It says, With the part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Now, in the overall scheme of things, with all of the questions and all the information it would be nice to have, why are we particularly interested in the vessels of the house of God? Would we really care about that? Well, Daniel did. Actually, later on in Ezra chapter 1, verse 11, we're told that 5,400 vessels were returned from Babylon, or Medo-Persia as it was then, back to Jerusalem. These vessels were taken from the temple and the precinct of the temple. They were holy and precious. They were fundamental to the worship of Yahweh in that place. And here they were being brought to Babylon, these holy, precious vessels. About 70 years later, Daniel, now in his 80s, well into his 80s, witnessed a king who was going to challenge the glory of the God of Israel. He was going to treat the God of Israel as unholy. It was, of course, Belshazzar. And 70 years later, he brought these vessels into a banquet. And it says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to the thousand of his lords and drank the wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded the king to bring the gold and silver vessels 
which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. And so they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And his princes and wives and concubines did drink in them. That night they would all die. From the first book of the Bible until the end, one of the principles which Daniel understood, and we all, have, we all understand, don't we, is that God is holy. That is, he's not to be dismissed. He's not to be treated like one of our friends or a mate. He's not like just somebody else. He is glorious and all-powerful and wonderful, and we, are, and we ought to be in awe of him. And so when the disciples came to our Lord and said, teach us how to pray, he said, this is how you pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We don't use the word hallowed very often these days, but it means holy. Holy be your name. The things of our Father are of supreme value. They are holy. And Daniel was coming into a new world where these vessels, you'll see, that were holy to God were special, were now just going to be put into the house of gods. And so while Daniel was in exile, the question would be was, would he still continue to see God as being holy? Would Yahweh still be the God, the holy God? And you'll see the care that Nebuchadnezzar took, unlike Belshazzar, these were valuable vessels, no question. Daniel lived in a world where, well, God was valuable for sure. God was certainly interesting. Well, but he was just like, well, any other valuable thing as well. There was thousands of gods, it said, in Babylon. God was important, but really just like many other important things in life. Daniel lived in a world just like we live in. A world where people say, well, God is important, well, and certainly if he's important to you, he's important, but he's just another one of the important things in your life. And so today in the world, you can pick your important thing. You can even pick your God. You can pick your Trinity or your unity or your Christianity or your Islam, and really nobody minds too much, and they'll even respect you for it. But there's really no importance attached to it in that sense. And Daniel and his friends would have to decide whether they were going to maintain their value system and see Yahweh, God of Israel, as ultimate value, as the ultimate glory. Or were they going to adopt the value system of Babylon where Yahweh would be important, but many other things in life were of equal importance. And that was going to be the challenge that they were about to be faced with. And they were going to be assaulted with a cultural change program that was going to ensure that they adopted the Babylonish way of thinking. Nebuchadnezzar was a very shrewd man. You don't get to be the king of the world by being a fool. He was no fool. He was intelligent and far-sighted. And so he would go into these um, places like Israel or Judah and Jerusalem and he'd pick out the very best young people, people that were young enough to be taught but super smart people that could help him in the years to come. And what he'd often do, once he'd trained them up, 
lavished them with all of the benefits and all of the luxuries of Babylon. He'd send them back to where they came from. And there they would rule on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar. They would be loyal people who would be uh, kings and leaders back in the land that they'd been taken from. And so this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does with Daniel and his friends. Certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom there were no blemish. This is what Nebuchadnezzar valued. They were well-favoured, skilful in wisdom, cunning in knowledge, understanding science, and had the ability to stand in the king's palace, whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. The king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, and so nourished them for three years, and at the end thereof the king, they might stand before the king. And so in order for Nebuchadnezzar to change these young men, to change the way they looked at the world, he put them through a three-year talent program. And it involved the change of location. So he took them from Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon. And so they were put not just in Babylon, but in the very heart of Babylon, in the king's palace precinct, no less. They were in the very centre of the world. Imagine that. He would change their names or their identity, the way they thought about themselves. He changed their food and drink. He changed their learning and education, the way they understood the world and the way they viewed the world. And finally, he would change their language, the way they spoke, the way they expressed themselves, the way you describe the world you live in and understand the world you live in. And anyone my age who can look back over the years, the last couple of decades that we have lived in, we realise that the world we live in is going through a very similar cultural change program. Why would you change their name? What's in a name? What's the big deal about changing their names? Well, a name is a big deal. This was understood by people in these times. We know that most of the characters in the Bible have names that mean something. This was what was done in those days. I mean, it's not quite so different. It's a little bit different today in the sense that I might have a name or you've got a name and it probably doesn't mean that much as an individual level. But of course, names do mean a lot. We call it branding today. It's a multi-billion dollar exercise. And of course, in each of the names that companies choose and other people choose, there's a whole culture and a whole message and a whole way of viewing the world that sits behind a name. And we already talked about the name of Yahweh already this, morning, uh, this afternoon. And so names had meaning. There was a sense of identity associated with a name, just like a brand, as we might use it in today's world. And so these, these men, these young men, had names which represented their heritage and their value system. And so Daniel, of course, was... God is my judge, or Ale is my judge. Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. And Mishael, who is like Ale, who is like God. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't want this heritage, did he? It's not what Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. And so that was to be banished from memory, and they were given new names. Belteshazzar, may Bel protect you. Bel was the main god of Babylon. Shadrach, the commander of Aku, who was the moon god. 
Abednego, the servant of Nabu, who was the son of Bel, and Meshach, who is like Aku. And so Babylon was going to change their names because it was going to change their identity. And the question was, of course, was Babylon going to change the identity of these men? And the answer was, it didn't. It changed their names, but it couldn't change their identity. You know, cities and places have their, their culture and their ideology. It underpins the way life is seen in those places, and Babylon was no different to other cities. You could talk about the difference between Melbourne and Sydney or Sydney and Brisbane. You could, you could sort of talk about the different types of culture and the different way people live their lives. Well, what sort of, what sort of city was Babylon? What was Babylon based on? Well, I think we've already probably hinted at it, but we don't need to guess because we know the background. Genesis 11 verse 4, it was a city that was based on personal ambition. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It was built on personal ambition and pride. This idea of identity. And this idea of identity is what is meaningful to you. Where do you get your meaning from in life? Who are you and why do you do what you do? And so in the case of Babylon, it came from self-achievement, making a name for yourself. And that's what Babylon stood for. It's exactly like the world we live in today. You know, in the very next chapter of the Bible... We get an alternative view, don't we? We have a man who was taken out of Babylon. Come out of Babylon, out of Ur of the Chaldees, says God. Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whom him who dishonours you I will curse and in you... All of the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Babylon stood for personal achievement, creating one's own identity. What does Jerusalem stand for? This is the story of the Bible, isn't it? Right from the beginning to the end. From the early chapters of Genesis, we've got Babylon set against Jerusalem. Right through to the end of Revelation, Babylon set against Jerusalem. One stands for personal achievement. And, setting your, and, and establishing your own identity. And the other stands for allowing God to work in your life and allowing him to establish your identity, allowing God to mould you and make you who he wants you to be. Jerusalem stands for reliance on God. We need to let go of personal pursuits and trying to establish our own identity this was certainly what Daniel and his friends did. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be unsuccessful. They paid attention to their learning, didn't we? We read that. Daniel is probably the most successful public servant in the history of mankind. He was the ruler, second or third in at least the two world empires. He was the second ruler for Nebuchadnezzar. He was obviously high up for Belteshazzar, or Belshazzar as well. And then when the Medes and Persians took over, they elevated him again. He was an extraordinary man, but his life was always Yahweh first. He was always a servant of Yahweh first 
and then a public servant. He was an extraordinary man. Their language was also changed. And ironically, of course, it was Babylon where languages were, were created or changed in the first place. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so here was Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon trying to reverse the work that the angels did in Genesis chapter 11. And we live in a world that's not dissimilar. We live in a world that's changing our language, changing the way we speak. In fact, the world, in some cases, is trying to tell you how you should speak. So words that we used to use we don't use anymore and words we never heard of before all of a sudden we're using. Words like truth or commandment or authority, dogma, faith, conscience, morality, sin. Where do we use sin? Outside of maybe the walls of our ecclesia. Wrong, immoral, ungodly, husband, wife. Words that are being phased out of our language. And they've given away to words like non-discrimination, equality, diversification, choice, plurality, diversity, hate speech, and you get the picture. And words have different meanings now, don't they? You have spouse or marriage, tolerance, equality, male, female. Words that mean different things today than they, they meant just a couple of decades ago. We live in a world that is spiralling headlong into confusion because they've lost sight of any ultimate reality. This was not going to be the case with Daniel. We know the story. We know that Daniel refused to eat the king's meat. We read that in verse 8. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. The first thing I notice is that this was not a whim. Daniel thought deeply about this. It wasn't just something because he, some history or some sort of cultural thing or some preference. He purposed in his heart, he thought about this deeply. This meant something to him. And what was it? Why wouldn't he eat the meat? Well, we're told that he didn't want to defile himself. Now, the idea of defile means to be dirty. It's the opposite of holy, if you like. So we talk, think about the things that are holy and they're associated with washing and cleansing. Think of the temple and all of the, those things and the holy things. Well, defile is the opposite. It's being dirty and represents the opposite to being holy. Daniel saw himself as a holy vessel of God and he understood the importance of being separate and so he would not defile himself. And I don't think it's any coincidence that these holy vessels are mentioned coming out of Jerusalem along with the captives and so also when they when the special people of God return back to Jerusalem at the end of the 70 years, again, the holy vessels are mentioned. But what was it about the food? Why didn't Daniel want to partake of the food? Well, people say, well, there's probably three reasons, three possible reasons why Daniel didn't want to take the food. First, it might have been unclean. It could have been pork or it could have been shellfish. 
The second reason was it could have been that it wasn't killed properly. You remember that the Israelites had to kill the animal and drain the blood because the blood was God's. So it mightn't have been killed properly. Or perhaps the, uh, the food had been offered to idols. Well, we're not told and Daniel doesn't say. The thing I do notice, though, is that Daniel says in verse 8, it's the king's meat and wine that he would not partake of. There were no rules that I know of in the law of Moses about what wine you could drink or not drink. So I don't think it's got anything to, to do with the law of Moses. I think the point is that Daniel was not interested in getting involved with and participating in the delicacies of Babylon. Daniel was refusing this new way of life. Today we call it a lifestyle. And I think Daniel was refusing that lifestyle. He was a Hebrew and he wanted to stay a Hebrew. And Daniel never compromised. He never changed that way of thinking from a young man to an old man. And as we mentioned, 70 years later, there was another feast and they were eating the meat and they were drinking the wine and they were all killed. And we know what happened when the writing came up on the wall, that they had to go and find Daniel, someone who might be able to interpret the writing because Daniel wasn't there, even though he was second or third in the empire. When they were feasting, he wasn't there. I've got no doubt it got to a stage where they didn't bother inviting Daniel to the feasts any longer. Daniel never changed his way of thinking. Even a few years later, when Daniel was um, one of the rulers under the, the Medes and Persians, it says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, that he was preferred among, above all of the other presidents because there was an excellent spirit found in him. And so King um, Darius appointed Daniel as second in charge of the empire. It says in Daniel 6, verse 4, that his peers sought to find occasion against him. I wonder why they hated Daniel so much. They were no, no doubt jealous because of his success, that's for sure. But I think probably he didn't fit in either. He was not one of them, not one of the boys' club there at all. I mean, he was off eating vegetables and drinking water when they were all feasting and drinking the king's wine. And we know the story. They tricked the king into making a proclamation that anyone who approached any uh, king for 30 days, any uh, god for 30 days, was to be thrown into the lion's den. So what does Daniel do? We know the story. Daniel goes into his house. He opens a window or the window's open. He faces Jerusalem. He gets down on his knees and he prays. So again, we have the same question, don't we? We're not actually told why he did it, really. But actually, I think we've got a clue as to why he did it. Let's read Daniel 1, verse 8. As he did aforetime, says Daniel, he went into his house. His windows being open in his chamber towards Jerusalem, he kneeled down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. I think this is the clue as to why Daniel did it. There's no commandment in the law of Moses that you have to pray towards Jerusalem. There's no requirement to do that. He didn't have to have the window open. He could have shut the window. But he didn't. And I think what we're being told here is that 
This was Daniel's devotion to his God. This was his expression of worship. Three times a day, he would go to his room. Wherever he was in the palace, he'd go up to his room. He'd go to this window which faced Jerusalem. And this was the way he had determined to devote himself to his God. And this was not open for, co for compromise. This was, not going, this was not up for conversation. The Medes weren't going to tell him how he was going to worship his God. And so from a young man to a much older man to the end of his life, he was a man who rejected the lifestyle in Babylon. He was absolutely committed to remain holy before his God. Another insight we get into these men in these verses, in these chapters, is we notice here that it looks like it's Daniel that takes the lead. It's Daniel that purposes in his heart not to partake of the wine or the meat. But we find the other three friends follow along with Daniel's example. We wonder what would have happened if Daniel hadn't have stood up. Would they have thought about it or what would they have done? Well, we don't know. But what we do know is that they stood behind Daniel's example and, and, and stood with Daniel in this. We come to chapter 3, of course, and Daniel's missing. We don't know where Daniel is, but here's the three friends without Daniel. And they refuse to bow down to the great image in the plain. And so these three friends are standing up for themselves. We also come over to Daniel chapter 2. We get an insight into the relationship between these men in Daniel chapter 2. We know that Daniel hears that Nebuchadnezzar is going to king the, uh, kill the wise men. And so Daniel seeks an audience with the king. Verse 16, he promises the king, in verse 16, that he would show the king's interpretation. Now, at this point, Daniel not only doesn't know the interpretation, he doesn't even know what the dream is. And he says, can you get me in front of the king? I'll tell him what the dream is and what the interpretation is. And he has no clue. He has absolutely no clue what the dream was or the interpretation. So what does he do? Verse 17, Daniel goes to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of, God, of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And so in a time of crisis, he turns to his friends. Thousands of kilometres away from their home, from the ecclesia of God as it was, here are four young men that are standing together, who together are unbreakable in their bond and their support for one another in their spiritual life. It's a story not about one man, is it? It's a story about a small group of brethren who decided that they were going to remain holy and they were going to encourage one another to live a life of holiness before their God. And so their challenge was they would accept the education, they would learn what Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to learn, they would learn the language, but they would never discount God in their life and they would keep separate in the way they lived their life. There was a curious twist, did you notice, in verse, chapter 1, verse 12. Let's find this quite interesting and wonder what was going through Daniel's mind. In chapter 1, verse 12, when Daniel says, I'm not going to eat the meat, well, actually, he doesn't say that. What he says in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Prove thy servants. I beseech thee ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat or vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our countenance or our face be looked upon, 
and the face of the children that eat the portion of the king's meat, as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them for ten days. What I find curious is that Daniel didn't say, I'm never eating the king's meat. I, I just won't be doing that, regardless of what happens. He actually says, give, give us just ten days and we'll prove to you that we'll be better off and then you decide whether we eat the meat or not. We know what happened in verse 15. At the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in the flesh than all the children that did eat the portion of the king's meat. And get a real insight into Daniel here. And it's worth thinking about for ourselves. He didn't just understand what was the right thing to do. He actually knew that it was going to be good for him. I think that might sound pretty obvious, but I think it's actually a real insight, isn't it? When we think about what our Heavenly Father wants of us in our life, do we actually see it as being good for us? Do we actually see that we'll be better off for it in the long run? Because I think that's the challenge of the way we see our life in our, in, 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 under the shadow of our Father's hand, isn't it? That in the end, we'll be better off if we follow the instructions and live a life of holiness before our God. So we should actually want to do what God wants us to do and be confident that as a result we will be better off. The results at the very end in verse 18 were amazing. At the end of the three years, at the end of the days that the king had said that he would bring them in, the princes and the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them, and among them was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king in all matters of wisdom and understanding, and the king inquired of them, and he found them ten times better than all the magicians, the astrologers that were in his realm. If we follow our father's advice, we will be better. I don't think that means we're going to necessarily be the smartest or the richest, or anything else particularly, but we will be better. We will be better for it. We will be better for following our Heavenly Father's guidance in our lives. The similarities between the world that we live in and the position we find ourselves in as these young men are obvious, aren't they? And so the book of Daniel is a record of not only Daniel's life, but of the life of his friends and, of course, prophecies. It's a book that was written probably by Daniel, for people like us. It's a book which can be divided in half. Well, it's often described as a book that can be divided in half. It's got sort of the narrative of half the first six chapters. And the last six chapters are more about the prophecy. I'm not sure that's exactly true. I mean, chapter two is all about prophecy. The book itself, though, or well, the author actually divides it somewhat differently. The book at the beginning is in Hebrew, up to about chapter 2, verse 4. Then there's a big section that's in Aramaic, which is the tongue that was spoken of in Babylon and in the region, generally speaking. And then in the end, there's four chapters at the end of the book that are in Hebrew. It'd be interesting to have a chat about why you think the middle of the book was in Aramaic. That's a conversation we, we don't have time to talk about now. But I believe this book like all of the Bible, of course, but this book is designed for people like you and I, for people that are in exile and are waiting for the time to come 
when the kingdom of God will be established and will be called into Jerusalem to reign as kings and priests with, that, with Messiah, the king of Israel, as it will be. And so we see that this book is, has a series of chapters, chapters 1, 3 and 6, which are all about maintaining our integrity in the kingdom of men. Chapter, chapter 1 is about integrity in behaviour. Chapter 3 is integrity in worship. And chapter 6 is integrity in devotion. And then we have two similar but contrasting chapters. And these are about the fact that the kingdoms of men are going to be humbled. So whilst you're living in Babylon, it mightn't feel like it. It mightn't feel like that all of the things that are around about us are one day going to come tumbling down, but they are. It's going to happen. Chapter 4, of course, we've got Nebuchadnezzar, who was humbled. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. And in, in, by comparison and in contrast, we have the other king who refused to be, who refused to be humbled, Belshazzar. And Daniel says, the God in whose breath, sorry, in, in God whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, you have not glorified. God has numbered your kingdom, and he's finished it. You're weighed in the balances, and you're found wanting. Your kingdom is divided, and it's been given to the Medes and Persians. And of course, that night, the kingdom of Babylon was to fall. And then we have... Chapters which talk about the kingdom of God that will prevail over the kingdoms of men. Chapter 2 finishes with, The king answered Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of secrets, seeing that you could reveal this secret. And chapter 7 finishes, The judgment shall sit and they will take away his dominion and consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and dominions will serve and obey him. And so we have this section or these chapters that teach us that the kingdom of men is going to give way ultimately to the kingdom of God. And then at the end of the book, we've got this little Hebrew section, which is made up of four chapters in Hebrew. And these chapters are really chapters which are designed to assure us that God is in control. God will be exalted in, verse, in chapter 8. The answer to the question, well, how long will it be, is in, verse, in chapter 9. And then we have a time of trouble and then final redemption in the last two chapters of Daniel. It's an extraordinary book. And you might also sort of get, see a little bit of a similarity, I think, to the way the book Revelation is written, where we have uh, visions of the future age, wrapped in with prophecies that are narrative about the events that are going to take place. And so we have these, these sort of this over-wrapping way of um, encouraging, um, each, uh, encouraging us in the way that these books are written. And so the book of Daniel is a book which is an assurance of hope to those faithful in exile down through the ages. And so the message comes down through the years from Daniel 600 um, years before the Lord Jesus Christ, right down to our Master, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, 
who in his very final message, in the very final part of his message, reminds us, come out of her, my people, he says. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour thy judgment is come. And the time is coming when that city will be destroyed and those who have come out of her will be the saints that will rule with Christ forever and ever upon the earth. And so we finish with Daniel's message in chapter 12. A promise to those who maintain spiritual integrity, even when in isolation, even when in exile. And they shall be wise. They that are, shall be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever. Our reading tonight took us to a very special man and there's a psalm that we all know so very well and in fact there'll be many of us here that would be able to say it off the top of our head but in that psalm it starts by saying Yahweh is my shepherd and in a year like this I don't know whether we've actually stopped and pondered how powerful that could actually be in our life or has it been so challenging for us that maybe we've lost sight of its reality? And we've felt that maybe we've been alone. Maybe we haven't had a shepherd. And we don't know where and what God is doing in our life. But his next words were this. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now other translations say things like, there is nothing I lack or I have everything I need. Really? Could you say that, brothers and sisters? Could I say that? That because Yahweh is my shepherd, there is nothing I lack? In a year like 2020, with COVID and the isolation and the challenges of health and of difficulties that many of us, even in our ecclesia, have faced, could we really say that God has provided everything that we need? Or is this person who penned these words by the Spirit of God out of touch with our lives today? Maybe in an age where we want it all and we want it now and really the things that we lack is what the Joneses have next door. Really, could this person truly relate to what we have been through this year? Maybe there's financial challenges, health difficulties, family struggles, isolated and alone from family and friends. Maybe we've lost loved ones in our life. Maybe we don't have someone close to us that we can call our personal friend. Maybe we're lonely because people don't come and spend time with us as much anymore. We don't feel part of the in crowd that we can spend time with others. Maybe the lockdown has been a terrible challenge for us. 
because we haven't had the opportunity to get together, because we've been restricted. We can't even come together and sing. Well, brothers and sisters, Psalm 23 was written by David, who was not out of touch with any of these issues. In fact, he knew them only too well. And Psalm 23 really shows that this young man, I believe when he wrote it, not only had a wealth of experience already in these things, but he was a man after God's own heart and was truly in touch with the Father's view of how we should be feeling when we're going through this, these various challenges. In fact, David's struggles were as real as ours, even at a young age, possibly as young as 16 or 17, when he possibly could have written this. And that's why, brothers and sisters, I'd like us to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at his life and the immense power of his words. Because he can not only empathise with us, but he provides us with the answer. He provides us with the amazing power of God to tap into. And just before we look at David and some of his experiences, I'd just like to sort of define a few little terms because I found it quite interesting when, when thinking about isolation and what it was, was like and how we would all, I suppose, be going through this and reacting in different ways. But the idea of solitude is just spending time alone. And it's not necessarily bad of itself because, well, Jesus himself in Mark chapter 1 says that he went out in the morning, rose up early before it was day, and he went out and he departed into a solitary place and there he prayed. So sometimes being in a state of being alone and, and, and being all on your own is actually a good thing, as Christ often had to go out and recharge. But sometimes it can also be a negative thing because even at the very start of the Bible, God reveals that it was not good for man to be alone. And I'm sure that all of us are looking at that going, well, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, that might apply differently. I mean, I'm a true introvert and so therefore quite happily can enjoy time on my own. There's just not a problem in the world. I could sit there and be absolutely fine. But other people, extroverts, no, they have to be around people. So even our circumstances can be different. And really what one person might find isolating and lonely, another person might not feel that. So isolation, though, is the experience of being separate. And this can even be based on our own decisions. We could you know, be doing something that takes us away from others or it might just be the circumstances of our life, the, the loss of a loved one or you know, doing something that you know, we've been working for so long and now we've retired and suddenly we're feeling physically isolated from other people. It could be emotional, that we, we feel that there's no one whom we can confide in and that could be real or perceived and it could be social as well, that we, in the absence of social relationships we feel distinct from others and therefore not a part of a group. And so loneliness is that feeling. It's a negative feeling that we desire this social contact, but ultimately we don't have it. And therefore, it's an emotional reaction to that social isolation. But the interesting thing is, it is possible to feel lonely even when we're surrounded by people. And that's the challenge, isn't it, for a group of people, that they're in the midst of a big group of people, a bubbly group of people could be someone who is all alone. And yet the reverse is also true. It's possible to be alone and yet not lonely. In other words, we could be in solitude but not distressed by it. So all of us, brothers and sisters and young people, feel differently when we look at this idea. But 
really, is this such a big issue? Is loneliness and, and isolation a big issue for all of us? Well, it's interesting when we look at some of the stats that one in four adults in Australia are lonely. Younger adults actually feel more social interaction anxiety than older Australians. I found that quite interesting. 55% of young people said that they sometimes or always feel left out. 55% of young people feel left out. Perceived or real? 17% of young people feel, said that they feel that they are, there's rarely people that they can talk to. And loneliness causes significant physical and mental health concerns. Depression, anxiety, despair, hopelessness, poor health. And that's the statistics from 2018 and 2019. And brothers and sisters, in this year, we have been through COVID, which has like, virtually brought out that even more. So brothers and sisters, is this a big issue to tap into the life of people like David and of Daniel and of Paul and of Joseph? Well, hopefully this weekend is going to be very powerful for us all because even at a time where we have more social media and more technology, isn't it funny that the world is actually more disconnected than it has ever been? But brothers and sisters, could the great man David relate to this? Surely you know, the King David that we think of, surely a man like that was never disconnected in any of these ways. Well, if you try to do a graph of, and a timeline of David's life, it's quite interesting to think that there were large portions of his life where this was a significant issue to him. There were times when he was young where there was actually physical and social and emotional isolation. Here was the shepherd boy out with the sheep, there were some times he probably would have been out there for weeks at a time away from his family. And here, not only was there physical, but think of what we just read in 1 Samuel 16, the social and emotional um, you know, separation that he had. The youngest in the family looked down by his older brothers, his adversaries, he calls them. And here in 1 Samuel 16, there's a special dinner being created for the family and David's not even invited. He's the youngest, he's out with the sheep, and in fact... You know, Jesse doesn't even realise he's not there until suddenly all the other brothers get, you know, no, sorry, God has not chosen him. So, brothers and sisters, do you think David could actually feel what we feel in terms of the physical and the social and emotional separation that he had? And in fact, there he was anointed in the very midst of his brethren, it tells us. Why did God do that? Because there, in front of his enemies, God was showing that he was with him. And that's what Psalm 23 picks up. And we know that his older brothers had this attitude towards him because in 1 Samuel 17, it's interesting when David comes to, to see how the brothers are faring at the war with Goliath, that Eliab's anger was kindled, we're told, in 1 Samuel 17 against David. And he says, why have you come here? And why have you left those few sheep that you're looking after in the wilderness? You can hear the tone and the mocking of Eliab. He goes, I know the pride and the naughtiness of thy heart. And brothers and sisters, that was a man that God called after his own heart. Well, what about this time? Was this, is this something that we have records of? Absolutely. We have amazing amounts of Psalms. Here's just two for an example. David was out you know, there alone at night, and he would look up into the heavens, and there he would see God's presence in the stars around him. Well, there's other times in his life David the fugitive, times where he was physically 
and socially isolated as Saul tried to chase him down. And again, we have a multitude of Psalms to rely on. Psalm 142 and 57 were when he was in the cave. 56 and many of the other Psalms when he was chased by the Philistines as well. We have times where after his sin with Bathsheba, can you imagine the social and emotional isolation that he would have felt having wronged so many people in his own nation? And of course, we can see that in many of his Psalms, but particularly 51 and 32. And then in the latter part of his life, as his own family went against him, Absalom revolted and tried to take over the crown. Again, he had to flee out of Jerusalem and he had to leave behind his city, physically separated, emotional, as well as social isolation. And again, we have a wealth of Psalms to see that David wrote concerning these times. So brothers and sisters, the take-home message for us is very powerful. Spiritual connection with God must be built in every aspect of our life. It doesn't just come in the good times. In fact, if anything, that trust with our God is forged through the, the, through the bad times. It's there where our trust in God really gets its test. And so from David the youth, just think of some of the beautiful things that he wrote during this time by the power of God. The youngest son often left outside a lonely and dangerous job, long, long nights. Who do you have but God out there? And if you read Psalm 19, it's a beautiful psalm. He looks up and he sees that the heavens declare the glory of God. And there he is out at night, all alone, meditating on his God, building that connection with his father. And of course, this was a very dangerous time for David because he tells us in chapter 17 when Saul's interviewing him, he's, he was out and able to fight off a beast and a lion. There defending his sheep as the shepherd. This was not easy time. And of course, in Psalm 23, he was anointed in the midst of his adversaries. And I just quoted that idea from 1 Samuel 17, where Eliab says, the evil of your heart, not even invited to be part of the dinner. And during the time as a fugitive, brothers and sisters, he was hunted and pursued by Saul. And not only Saul was after him, but the Philistines as well were trying to take him out. And of course, we have this record here in Psalm 56, where it says, thou tell us my exile. In other words, you know my exile, you know my isolation, and I'm out here on my own. And you put my tears into your bottle. What beautiful and personal language is recorded there for us, brothers and sisters, that we might see the relationship of David with his God. And Psalm 34 was when, of course, with the Philistines. And this psalm demonstrates how he was so fearful and anxious he calls himself this poor man and this broken heart. Brothers and sisters, can we relate to some of these things that he went through when we think about how he can relate to us? When he was in the caves, the cave of Adullam, we know that Psalm 142 is written concerning this time. And he says there was no man. Here he was isolated in this cave to know him. And refuge failed him. No man cared for his soul. Bring me out of the prison, he says. There we have David's own feelings laid bare for us, brothers and sisters. And of course, subsequently, he was picked up by the riffraff who came to follow him. But again, little spiritual connection between them. But slowly that grew. And in the cave of Engedi, he says that he, his soul was amongst the lions. David the sinner, another period of time in his life where although, of course, his sin was forgiven, it had a huge impact on him. In fact, for the rest of the life of his life, David and the relationships that were around him were 
forever affected. And of course, we know that the situation arose out of a time of self-chosen isolation, showing us some of the dangers that isolation can have for us. And of course, he was abandoned and hated by his own closest friend. And so he says in Psalm 41, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. His only true friend lost in this scenario. Exiled from Jerusalem, his own son revolted against him. And here again, we have Psalm 69, which was written, we believe, about this time. Look what he says. I've become a stranger unto my brethren, an alien to my mother's children. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. That is David the king, feeling in total isolation. So brothers and sisters, do we feel that this man could possibly help us with our connection with God in isolation? It is so true, isn't it, when we see how powerful those words are, that we can resonate with those things and be encouraged by them. Well, I know that there's so many Psalms that we've just alluded to there, and there's not time to even consider um, you know, any of them in detail. But I'd like if we could to just focus on one psalm this afternoon, and that's Psalm 23. Now, Psalm 23, I believe, is written in, very early on, I, I believe here in 1 Samuel 16. And we can see very clearly it's, it's the psalm of a shepherd. But I found it interesting that a lot of people, when I was reading up on Psalm 23, seemed to indicate that they felt that this had to be written by an older man. And the reasons that they put forward for um, David being an older man when he wrote it was primarily these three reasons. One, that the psalm had to be written by someone who was spiritually mature. The words, the themes were obviously too above David. Now, of course, we know that God's inspiration overlaps that. But again, when we look at David and his life, here was a man who's introduced into the record in 1 Samuel 13 as a man after God's own heart. I find that remarkably challenging to think that he was not even at this age able to, to have those thoughts and, and to, to, to develop those sorts of principles. And we, we can actually see in, in our reading in 1 Samuel 16 that it says the Spirit of God came upon him from that moment, there overshadowing him and directing him. Well, other people say, well, you know, this idea of the valley of the shadow of death, you know, David must have seen that later on in the experiences of life. But again, we already know from 1 Samuel 17 that he was out fighting a lion and a bear. And by the time 1 Samuel 17 comes along, he sees Goliath as nothing to take on because he's already had God working in his life to this point in time. So again, we know these are very early experiences in David's life. And a lot of people say, well, these idea of his enemies, well, it wasn't until much later that he had them. Well, the word actually means his adversaries. And again, if you have a look both in 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 17, it attests very clearly to the idea that David already had that in his own family. So I really can't see that this is not a time that David could have written it. But if you have a look at the end of 1 Samuel 17, there's a very powerful little phrase that comes up. And it's this phrase in verse 18 that says, and we we often look at the idea that he was a mighty, valiant man, a man of war, prudent in matters, but it says at the very end that Yahweh was with him. There is the power of this man's life. Yahweh was with him. Now, this was written, I believe, by a shepherd 
inspired by God, his shepherd. And we only need to see the very beginning of Psalm 23, that for the first four verses, it has that theme of a shepherd. And then we'll see it transition to God's house. But here in Psalm 23, the focus of that psalm is to bring us to the same point as 1 Samuel 16 does. We can see that David and the whole chapter is structured around these, this transition. From David alone with the sheep, he's called into God's table and there anointed with exceeding blessings. And we are told that Yahweh is with him as the core of that chapter. Well, when we look at Psalm 23, we see exactly that pattern. Psalm 23 starts with a shepherd theme, that he is confident in God's guidance when he is alone. And it transitions to David being brought before God's table and given exceeding blessings before God. But what's fascinating is that the core of that psalm is in verse 4. For you are with me. There is a young man so totally confident Not that just that God was with him, but he understood that God was with him. There's the key difference in that young man's life. That wherever he was, even out with the sheep, all alone, he wasn't alone. He wasn't in isolation because his God was with him. And it's beautiful that the the Hebrew in Psalm 23 plays this out beautifully and focuses us in on that verse. And it's interesting that Psalm 23 actually in the, in the um, original, doesn't have any repetition, unlike other, uh, other psalms, except only two words that repeat. The first one is Yahweh. It starts and it ends the psalm. And, of course, right at the very end in verse 6, in order to demonstrate that it is the forever and ever, it's day upon day. But here we have Yahweh as the start and the finish of this psalm. This is what surrounded David wherever he was. And we'll have a look at the idea of shepherding in that in a minute. But what I found, which I thought was really interesting, was that this psalm in the Hebrew is made up of 55 words. And if you're going to take the median of those words, then you're looking for the 28th word. And that 28th word, brothers and sisters, is there in that phrase, for you are with me. There's the very focus. You are with me, God. It's as if the psalm points to that very thing, that the very core of David is the realisation that wherever he is, God is with him. And if you think in in terms of any of the troubles and the issues that we have in our life, brothers and sisters, God is the centre, he is the core, he is the answer to anything that we might be facing. So let that be our focus, brothers and sisters, even at the times where we are feeling isolated and alone, whether it be physical, social or emotional. The realisation that God is with us, that Yahweh is his shepherd. And God is always with us, brothers and sisters, always. There is not a place we can go that we can get away from his presence. And we ought to be truly blessed and honoured to know that our God is always surrounding our life. So as our take-home message of even just the structure of the psalm, we have great confidence that our shepherd is always going to be guiding us. Or we, like sheep, might go astray at times. We might turn everyone to our own way. We might even be all alone, whether that be in any of those ways that we've described. Yet we can be confident in this, that Yahweh is our shepherd. Now just stop and consider that for a moment, how powerful that is, because in ancient times, a shepherd was not a very 
high-ranking position. In fact, it was a lowly job. In fact, you palmed it off to the youngest of the family because they weren't really important enough to be out with dad doing other jobs. But God has chosen this to describe himself, that he is our shepherd. And therefore, when we think about this idea, this unpleasant assignment of looking after sheep, the smelly, annoying, cretinous little creatures that are only good to be put on a plate or a hamburger, in reality, that's it. But God has chosen that phrase for us. And I love this little, um, this little phrase here. The great God of the universe has stooped to take just such care of you and me. That's the image, brothers and sisters, that David has out where he's been left alone by even his family and then he calls upon God to be his shepherd and to feel the comfort of his God around him. I love this psalm, um, Psalm 78, verse 52 but made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them to safety so that they feared not. And when we think about this psalm, brothers and sisters, we might think, well, Psalm 23 is probably just a little bit easy, it's a little bit contrite, you know, some nice themes in there, but really it doesn't really hit some of the deepest challenges that we have. Really? I mean, this person has been through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows what it's like to be in waters that are definitely not calm. He knows what it's like not to be in pastures that are green. He knows what it's like to be surrounded by his enemies. Or have we missed, brothers and sisters, that maybe this psalm hits all of those fears and those anxieties that we might face and realise that in these small six verses is packed a great punch. But what I really do love is this idea that David says that Yahweh is my shepherd. You see, there's a deep and a personal and an active relationship that David has in this psalm. And if you just have a look through the psalm, it's worth noting as well that it changes in about verse 4. Do you notice that the first three verses it says, He makes me to lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths. But when we get to verse 4, brothers and sisters, it changes to you. You see, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare the table before me. Here is this personal relationship that David has with his God comes out beautifully in this psalm. And it's interesting that the word shepherd is actually translated in a variety of ways. For instance, in Proverbs 13, as companion. That if we are being shepherded by by God, he is our close companion in all of those times. Jeremiah talks about how he would feed them or shepherd them with understanding and knowledge. Ezekiel 34 says, I will feed my flock. I will cause them to lie down, saith Yahweh. I will seek them that were lost. And bring again that which was driven away. I will bind up that which was broken. I will strengthen that which was sick. Brothers and sisters, that is the image that David has of God. That's what a shepherd does. It's not just someone walking behind like, or even today in in Australian terms, where we get the quad bike and the dogs and we drive them to one place to another. This is a very intimate and personal relationship of someone who seeks out the lost and strengthens the sick and binds them up. 
What a beautiful image that David has of God. And so in times of our isolation, do we feel and do we see God as our shepherd? Our shepherd, not someone else's, us personally. Or just do we see God as being there for the good parts of our life? Well, David sees him in all parts, in the times where we desperately need strengthening, when, we, when we're sick, when we need binding. There we are caused to lie down by the strength of our God. And of course, these images are picked up in the New Testament, aren't they? Because David points beautifully to the work of Jesus, who is the great shepherd in the New Testament, who does exactly the same thing. And it's vital that we have that relationship with our, our Lord and Master, He calls his own sheep by name. He knows us. He knows what we go through and the challenges that we might face. And these beautiful words that he says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. And that's the responsibility that we have, brothers and sisters, to know our father and to know our master and to follow him because we know his voice. And that lays upon us a great deal of importance of listening to his voice and getting in touch with his voice and knowing that he is there in amongst our life. Because this shepherd is so amazing, he will even lay down his life for the sheep. And because of that, he gives us eternal life, that we would never perish, neither can any man pluck them out of my hand. Think of how personal that is, that we are in that shepherd's hand that we've been brought close to him. And so there's a great imperative for us not to always see that this is God overshadowing our life, but for us to draw near to God, to make sure that even in our isolation, we may not have others to talk to, but we have God. In our prayer and in our reading, is that the priority of our families and of, of us individually? That the word of God is known? That we can say that we know our shepherd's voice and what he wants us to do? That's so important for us to consider as well, our part, even in times of isolation. So Psalm 23 says, I shall not want. What's beautiful is this idea of not lacking is used all the way through the Old Testament. And there's so many amazing examples that we can draw encouragement from. It's used of God looking after his people in the wilderness as he provided manna for them. Sorry, I've spelt that wrong. Um, God's provision in the wilderness. It's actually mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and in Deuteronomy chapter 8 of the promised land. And what's fascinating, brothers and sisters, is in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's actually God saying that I led you in the wilderness and I I let you suffer hunger. You think, well, why would a shepherd do that? Doesn't the shepherd take them to green pastures? Well, it was there because God was trying to see whether in their heart they truly acknowledged his guidance and his love in all the things that he was doing. And when we look at this idea of I shall not want, we often interpret that, brothers and sisters, through our lens of today. And that is a material lens, that I have all that I want in great abundance. And yet, brothers and sisters, how sad we would be if we did have all that. Because here, there's this beautiful story that Christ picks up with this man in Mark chapter 10. The rich ruler who comes to him and he says, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And it says in Mark 10 that Jesus, beholding him, loved him. He goes, you just lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Take up your cross and follow me. And he went away very sorrowful 
because he wasn't willing to give up all those things. And that's why James 1 also picks up this idea that when we go through trials and difficulties, we're to turn to our God and ask him for the wisdom to see our life from his perspective. And he goes that you might be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. It's the same word that Christ used in Mark chapter 10. In the context of our life, brothers and sisters, this idea of wanting nothing is the idea that we have the treasure in heaven, that we have God. Even if we're alone and we have nothing at all, if we have God, we have everything because he is our shepherd. And there is, right from the very beginning of this psalm, confidence in God that he will bring us to this point. So, brothers and sisters, we need to ask God for his wisdom during times of struggle and difficulty. We need to have that open communication in prayer and through the word of God. It is the word of God that is the power to salvation. That's what we need to tap into. That's where faith comes from. That's where the presence of our God can be felt. And so Psalm 23 says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now, when researching this, I found this fascinating little comment, and I think it's very powerful. It says, Sheep do not lie down easily and will not unless four conditions are met. Because they are timid, they will not lie down if they're afraid. Because they're social animals, they will not lie down if there's friction amongst the sheep. If flies or parasites trouble them, they will not lie down. Finally, if sheep are anxious about food or they're hungry, they will not lie down. So rest comes because the shepherd has dealt with fear, friction, flies and famine. So here in this psalm, brothers and sisters, he's saying that God has dealt with those things and allows me to lie down in an area of great nourishment because he has the power to control all those things in our life. And so Ezekiel 34 says, I will feed them in a good pasture. Upon the high mountains of Israel shall they fold be. There shall they lie down in a good fold, in a fat pasture where they shall feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. In other words, there God has dealt with all of those things that are needed. How beautiful it is to consider that our God will bring us to that place. And so he says that he leads me beside still waters. And again, what's, what's fascinating is that sheep seldom actually drink from running water. Sheep actually need there to be a pool of water where it's still before they'll actually feel comfortable to drink. So again, we can see the beauty of the relationship that our father has here. And it's interesting that the eastern shepherd never drives his sheep, as does the western shepherd. He always leads them, often going before them. And where he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. Of course, that's what we can see in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it doesn't mean that the shepherd is always in front of his sheep, although he may be usually in that position when traveling. He often walks by their side, sometimes following behind them, especially if the flock is headed for the fold in the evening. From the, from the rear, he can gather up any stragglers, protect such from a, a sly attack from a wild animal. And so Isaiah speaks of the omnipresent Yahweh in this double relationship. In Isaiah 52, it says, For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for Yahweh will go before you, and Yahweh of Israel will be your rear reward. Beautiful, isn't it, when we consider that God is not only leading us, but will be there walking along beside us or behind us, protecting us as we go. Because he's leading us to still waters, the waters of rest, 
And again, this word comes up multiple times in the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, to tell us that this is the power of our God in our life. He can give us rest from our enemies. It's used of God's ark when it was brought up by David. It's talking in Isaiah 11 about the rest that Christ will bring in the kingdom. And of course, the house of God will be a place of God's rest in Isaiah 66. That my people shall dwell in quiet resting places. And what's fascinating is in John chapter 4, we know the great shepherd was tired in his, in his work. And he came to, the, to the, the well of Samaria. And it says he sat thus in this tired fashion on the well. But this sheep came out and he had this dialogue with this lady. And he spoke about the water that springs out into everlasting life. And when the, Pharise- when the uh, disciples came back, they said, did someone feed you or like why you were tired before we went in to get food for you and now you're, you're, you know, you're spruiking around. But Jesus said, well, I've had meat that you don't know. It's, it's the meat, of course, and the water that God gives. And we know this story too well. Of course, when Christ was in the boat with his disciples, he arose and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace be still. Brothers and sisters, that is the great calm that this shepherd can do in our life as well. This is how, in moments of our isolation, we can build our relationship with our God and his son and allow these things to be the strength of our life. And that's exactly what Psalm 23 goes on to say in verse 3. He restores my soul. You see, this is not just, you know, he refreshes us, brothers and sisters. This is more than that. This is a new life. And this idea of restoring my soul I found very fascinating that the first time that word is used, it's used in Genesis 3, verse 19, where God actually returns us to the dust. But in a lot of those other passages now, the mortality of man and the rest that we need is superseded by the wonderful things that God offers us. Just look at some of the ways that this word is used. Same same word in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of Yahweh is perfect, converting the soul. Psalm 51, after David's sin, he uses this word, restore unto me the joy of salvation. Micah 7, God will turn again and subdue our iniquities. He will turn back our soul from the pit. He will bring them again to this place. Brothers and sisters, when we look at our life and the struggles that mortality might have for us, there are nothing to be compared, nothing to be compared to the work of our shepherd and the strength that he has. That is the amazing power of our shepherd during times that we struggle through. And even as we go through those difficulties, it tells us in verse 3 that he will lead us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I found this, again, really amazing that these shepherds in the east were so skilled and had a relationship with their sheep that they could actually guide them along narrow paths because they didn't actually have fences that they could sort of, you know, protect them and then move them along. And it says that the grain fields were seldom fenced or hedged in Bible lands. And sometimes only a narrow path would run between the pasture and those fields. The sheep were forbidden to eat of the fields where those crops were growing. Thus, the guiding of the sheep along such a path, the shepherd was not allowed to allow those animals in because ultimately you'd have to pay damages if any of the sheep ate of the the grain of those fields. And it says here that one Syrian shepherd had been known to guide a flock of 150 sheep without any help along such a narrow path for quite a distance, without letting a a single sheep 
go where he was not allowed to go. That is amazing. That's the kind of shepherd that we have. He will lead us in right paths, brothers and sisters, and take into account the context of, the, of, of, the, of that verse because it's after where he tells us that he says in verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, that's a right path that our, that our shepherd will take us along and he will protect us even there. Why? Because the reason is for his name's sake. You see, we come to understand that our God is he who will be. That's the God that we remember. That's his plan. That's his purpose. And he does that because he's bringing us ultimately to the same end that he's going to bring all those faithful from all generation to. And that's why Psalm 79 says, Help us, O God of our salvation. For what's the motive? For the glory of your name. Brothers and sisters, where is the motive of our actions in our life? Is it for our glory, for our gain, for what we want out of life? Or is it, brothers and sisters, that we seek to live our life for the glory of his name and his praise? So we, thy people, and the sheep of thy pasture, will give thee thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. And that they are the exact words that David picks up in 1 Chronicles 16 when bringing up the ark. He reminds the people that they are saved because of giving glory to God. And so when we think about our life, brothers and sisters, it is not of our own merit. It is not of our own strength. It is not for our own glory. It is none of that. We come to thank our God because we can say that he has blessed us with so many spiritual blessings. For what reason? That we might be to the praise of his glory and of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. So when we go through our challenges, brothers and sisters, just maybe, just maybe our God is taking us along that road so that we might be refined for his name and for his purpose. And let's think about how his name and his glory and his praise should be everything in our life. Even the small things that we do day by day, do we make him the focus and the center of that? Or do we do it for what we like or what we get out of it? So even as we walk through some of the darkest moments of our life, the valley of the shadow of death, we know that our God is going to be with us. And that is an amazingly comforting thing. In fact, even picked up in the New Testament by Zacharias, when he suddenly was allowed to talk, out came these words by the power of God, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. There's the idea that the Son of God would be Emmanuel, God with us, to give a light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet through that to the way of peace. How beautiful, brothers and sisters, it is to know that God is with us. And therefore, in all honesty, although we do suffer with the anxiety and the struggles, what can we possibly fear if God is with us? And so David the shepherd brings out of course, the things that would have been very close to his heart and what he would have known and used day by day. He said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the rod, brothers and sisters, was more, more looked like a club, but it was there because it was to protect and to correct. And that would have been the thing that David would have been use, using to, to, to defeat the lion or the bear. But it's also used for correction because it is the symbol by which we are disciplined 
And God uses that himself here in Micah chapter 7. And what I found fascinating is that this is where they believe the origin of the scepter of a king came from. Because ancient kings of the east usually had with them this scepter which had its origin in the shepherd's rod. Because kings were considered to be shepherds of their people. Thus the scepter or rod of the king became the symbol of protection, power and authority. So Micah 7 says, rule thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine inheritance. But the idea of the staff, and some of them had a crook on, but not all of them had a crook on the end. But the idea of that crook was, of course, to actually, if there was a lagging sheep or something was going astray, could easily be rounded up and brought back to the shepherd. It is that guidance and that gentle care that the shepherd had for the sheep. Now, take or leave this next part. I found this as well. I don't know how true this is, but I actually found it quite interesting that in ancient times, the shepherd would often use the staff and the rod to actually work out the direction to true north. Now, I don't know how many a shepherd was able to use trigonometry while they're out there, but it's possible that they had a calculator as well in that bag. But it was a possible thing that someone put forward um, as a way in which they were able to determine which way was true north. Now, the reason why I found that interesting is because the rod and the staff, although providing all those things we talked about, was also the idea of comfort, that we would always know that God would be directing us into the right place. So, um, if anyone actually has any, I suppose, historical evidence of that, I'd be keen to, to, to know that. So, here we have the, the father who uses that, that method to direct us. But brothers and sisters, when we come to Psalm 23, you'll notice at the end of verse 4 that now there's a transition in the psalm. Because in verse 5, we have David being, in a sense, brought from out with the sheep, now in before to God's table. And I believe that this journey of Psalm 23 that is moving us through this theme is to show us that God is developing in David and bringing him into this fold, if you will, to show him the immensity and the power of the blessings of God's house and what that meant for David even as a king. But this phrase here, you prepare a table before me, only appears a few times in the Old Testament. And one such time is here in Exodus chapter 40. And it was when God was actually establishing the tabernacle and the table that was therefore set, it actually says he prepared the table, he set the table in its arrangement. As if there in the wilderness, brothers and sisters, was God demonstrating to his people that he was the great shepherd leading them through. But what's sad is that in Psalm 78, we're told that the children of Israel didn't believe and didn't see God at work in their life through all of that. And it says in Psalm 78 that they spake against God and said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And that word furnish is our same, same word as in Psalm 23. You see, brothers and sisters, they doubted God. They doubted that in their moments of, of struggle, that God wasn't with them, leading them. But here is David using it in this psalm in absolute confidence that God is with him, leaving behind the, the doubt of, of the Israel that is in the past. He comes to have confidence that God was there in his life, bringing him into his table, bringing him into that sacrifice that we read about, in Psalm, sorry, in 1 Samuel 16, bringing in his presence to God's own table. 
And this idea of anointing, now I've always thought when I read this psalm that when it says you anoint my head with oil, I've always taken it that that was the anointing of David in 1 Samuel 16 as, you know, the anointing of the king. Unfortunately, it's not the, it's not the word. There was a bit of a like, wow, I didn't think that. But the idea of anointing here is not the idea of anointing a king. It's the idea of making fat. It's talking about the abundance of blessings. So it's a totally different word, but the idea is the the anointing of God's fatness, of God's blessings upon David's head, the oil of gladness in him. And of course, his cup overflowing is proof that this is not just God providing him with blessings. It's a saturation. It's an overflow. It's an abundance of God's goodness in his life that he's commenting upon. Psalm 116 calls it the cup of salvation. We, brothers and sisters, know it in our own life. In 1 Corinthians 10, it's the cup of blessing which we have every Sunday, which we come to remember. And it's literally this cup of our connection to Christ. This is why it, it overflows in David's life, because it's not just representative of David being given the kingship. David's looking far beyond that. David's looking at the fact that God has brought him into his family. And David was very humbled, of course, by these things. And brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful comment by Derek Kidner, where he says, But the prospect is better than a feast. In the Old Testament world, to eat and drink at someone's table created a bond of mutual loyalty and could be the culminating token of a covenant. It was so in Exodus 24 when the elders of Israel beheld God and they ate and drank. And it was so again at the Last Supper when Jesus announced, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So David is seeing the fatness of this amazing blessing of being invited into not just his family, but into a covenant relationship with his God. And when we think of it like that, brothers and sisters, spiritual blessings in our cup, if we want to put it that way, truly do overflow because now we're not only just saved and forgiven, but we're provided with this amazing covenant by which we can be one with our God. And of course, we come to remember it, don't we, every morning on a Sunday. It's, the, it's called the table of the Lord. And it's as if the picture in the upper room is exactly what David was experiencing in Psalm 23. He that eateth bread hath lifted up his heel against me. The same themes of what Christ worked through with his disciples was exactly what David went through in his experiences in Psalm 23. And so being anointed of God, brothers and sisters, having the fullness of God in our life is the realisation that God can do exceedingly abundant above all that we might ask or think according to the power that he works in us. And we can build our spiritual resilience and our faith and our trust in him when we see the amazing things that God has done. So just coming to our last verse here in verse 6, it says, So surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. What a beautiful way to finish these thoughts. But this idea of goodness and mercy, brothers and sisters, comes up only a few times in the Old Testament again. And what's fascinating is that this idea of following me is the word pursuing me. And it's the same word used of Saul who was after David. Now, do we see, brothers and sisters, God pursuing us in our life like that? That his goodness and mercy will be in great abundance because David saw it that way. And that's why I think Psalm 23 is like this little amazing snapshot that from now on David would take with him through the rest of his life and he would always be centred by this psalm. 
he would come back to the realities of it. And when he brought the ark up in 1 Chronicles 16, he pens this beautiful little phrase that is now known all the way through the scriptures. He goes, Oh, give thanks unto Yahweh for he is good. There's the first word. For his mercy endures forever. Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together. There's the importance, brothers and sisters, of us coming together. And David saw it that way. David saw the very first thing he had to do when he became king was to gather the nation together. He understood, in a sense, the impact of isolation. And so he brought the ark up, the symbol of God's presence in their life, and he establishes it. And there he says is the proof of God's goodness and mercy enduring forever in his life. That little phrase stayed with him. And if we look at the psalm that was written at this time, which is Psalm 68, in Psalm 68 it says that he sets the solitary in families. So when David brings up the ark, there he saw the opportunity for those who were alone in his nation to be gathered around God as their core and saw that the gathering together of the people was the important way in which not only the ecclesia could come to worship God together, but most importantly, those who were lonely could be placed in a family. And I love this little quote from, um, you know, from the, the book, The Praises of Israel. It says, This loving care is extended also to the solitary, the lonely ones, whom God sets in families, or literally a house or a home. Essentially, this is God's family, and it serves to emphasize the responsibility that we have towards one another in the house of God. There can surely be no greater indictment of our ecclesial life than to have amongst us, through no fault of their own, lonely brothers or sisters. That's the way David saw, brothers and sisters, this psalm following him through his life, to ensure that he placed in, in his ecclesia those that he might have a family. And we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that maintaining a spiritual connection is vital for all of us. And that's not just about us looking out for others. It's about us making sure we come together so that we might be there for one another. When we come to the meeting, we don't come, brothers and sisters, for us. We actually should be coming for one another. We turn up so that we might be there to be the arm of God to another person. And too often we judge whether we go to ecclesial matters on what we get out of it. And I think that's incredibly sad because I think it's incredibly selfish. We should be, brothers and sisters, trying to get to everything we can, if we can, because, brothers and sisters, we might just be the way in which God can set that lonely or solitary person in a family. And that's the way David, as the first act of him being king, when he looks back and he says, well, the goodness and mercy of God being extended, that's how I can bring that to the nation. Again, another little beautiful phrase, it's mentioned in Micah 6, verse 8, Sorry, brothers and sisters, I'm going over time, so I'm going to have to move quickly. But in the, the beautiful uh, use of this in Psalm 69, which, of course, was the psalm written uh, at the time of Absalom, he goes, Hear me, O Yahweh, for thy loving kindness is good. And again, a beautiful little thing to do is to look at and see all the ways in which Psalm 23 becomes the hub for David for the rest of his life. He keeps going back to this psalm, drawing back to the power of the simplicity of his faith in God from this psalm. So therefore, goodness and mercy, brothers and sisters, will be seen more in our darkest moments. So the house of God, therefore, becomes his final focus. It says here that 
To be God's guest is more than his acquaintance, invited for a day. It is to live with him. There is a suggestion of pilgrimage in the picture of progress that ends in the house of the Lord. It is also a journey home, for it was not only the Levites who considered the courts of the Lord to be their true home, but it was also in the heart and mind of David. And so what I find beautiful, brothers and sisters, is when we go to 2 Samuel 7, the second thing that David does when he becomes king is he decides to build a house for God. You can see how this is very much on his mind. He wants to dwell in the house of God forever. But when we go to 2 Samuel 7, it's interesting that it mirrors exactly the same pattern as Psalm 23. God comes back to David and he says, I took you from the sheep coat from following the sheep. That's where you started, David. You started as a shepherd, but I took you from that and I took you to be ruler over my people. I brought you to my table, David. And I created a great name for you. I surrounded you with amazing blessings. And there in 2 Samuel 7, it tells us that as he walked with Israel, so he would be with David wherever he went. It's the same pattern over and over again. So brothers and sisters, spiritual integrity, I believe, comes from having God's house in our own heart. And when we think of 2 Samuel 7, it beautifully parallels Psalm 23. The connections are all there to tell us that as David was trying to build a house for his, his nation to see God as the core, he was using Psalm 23 as the basis to know that the goodness and blessings of God would be upon his nation. He quotes exactly the same phrases over and over again. If you're wondering why they're underlined, um, it's, it's where the exact same word is used between the two. So brothers and sisters, David finishes this psalm with, I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. And I believe that this is a twofold comment. The first is it's a promise by David to stay connected to God. As a young man, he makes a covenant with God. I will want to stay in your house, faithful to that forever. Whatever is going to come, I know all things will work together for good. But it's also an assurance, brothers and sisters, that God will provide the grace and the care to get us there. And so Isaiah says, incline your ear, come unto me and hear, and your soul may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. And in the New Testament where that's picked up, brothers and sisters, it's connected not only to the forgiveness of sins, but it's connected to the resurrection from the dead. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever.